Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book, My Other Works, at The Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is the farm podcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get between you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Okay, guys, we've got a repeating guest for today's episode of the farm. He is the founder of the Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud. He is also the curator of its excellent website, cabdef.org, and is presently investigating the mysteries of John Benet Ramsey's death, the Henry Lee Lucas case, and Ted Bundy, which happens to be today's topic. He's George of CavDev. George, thank you so much for dropping by again today, sir. Thanks for having me. It's just always great to be on the show. Absolutely. We love you around these parts, George. All right. We are going to get into Ted Bundy in a deep dive kind of way, as I mentioned at the beginning. Bundy is one of the many celebrity serial killers that David McGowan addressed in Program to Kill. Inevitably, there are a lot of strange things surrounding the Bundy case, but that's one. Uh, but Bundy does not seem to have drawn the same kind of attention as some of the other notable serial killers the McGowan's work uh, went into in depth. But George has been working to change that. As we shall see, Bundy is one of the most mysterious of the celebrity serial killers shrouded in all kinds of sinister implications and connections. So, on that note, let us get going. All right, George, to start off with, let's get into Bundy's origin story. So tell us a bit about his parentage and his youth. And of course, that special moment when he killed his first cat. Yeah, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of the storyline with Bundy, you know, follows the same sort of pattern of a lot of these serial killers, and that their problems seem to be intergenerational in nature. And uh, his family dynamic, starting from his early life, is definitely no exception to that. He was born at an unwed mother's home in Burlington, Vermont, uh, to his mother Eleanor Cowell, who later went by her middle name Louise. Uh, the identity of the father is was somewhat of a mystery. You know, she claimed that she was seduced by a World War II veteran named Jack Worthington, and you know, she initially was planning to give up her uh, her newborn son, but you know, eventually her family pretty much convinced her to take him back in, and so she went back to her family's home and basically had this weird arrangement where her great where her parents Bundy's grandparents would raise Ted Bundy as if he was their child and claimed that his mother was actually his sister. So already you have this weird sort of quasi incestuous seeming kind of relationship uh, in the family. And one of the more disturbing theories about Bundy's parentage is in fact that Luis's father, Sam Cowell actually was the father of Ted Bundy, that it was a case of uh, rape of his own daughter. Many of, many family, a couple of family members would later basically speculate to that effect, but there's no doubt that Sam Cowell was a very uh, awful and sort of sadistic man. He was racist, sexist, he was physically abusive towards his wife and towards his children, you know, through 
one of his children down the stairs at one point and did all sorts of awful unspeakable things to them. He would terrorize animals, you know, like swinging cats around by their tails. So, and he also seemed to have some kind of underlying mental issues in that he you know, would be talking to people who weren't actually there, an indication of possible schizophrenia or even a possible dissociative disorder as we often see in these cases of uh, cases of overlap with abuse and also mind control type of programs. So right from the beginning, a lot of these same sorts of warning signs are there in the family. Now, for whatever reason, Ted Bundy was actually would speak in very glowing terms about his grandfather, had nothing bad to say, said that he really looked up to him as sort of the pinnacle of what a man should be like. And that probably did set the tone for a lot of his subsequent life. He also described how at a very young age, he ended up coming across his grandfather's pornography collection. Sam Cowell was very much obsessed with pornography and Bundy reportedly got into that collection and he himself became very now interested. This, uh, just to interrupt, this would have been like around the 50s and 60s, right? Yeah, Bundy was born in uh, 1946. So. Okay, just to sort of, you know, I know nowadays porn is, you know, garden variety. I mean, it's, you know, there's no real trouble finding porn in this day and age. But um, certainly in that particular era, though, um, I mean, gosh, it sounds like he certainly would have started collecting well before Playboy was founded, for instance. Um, he probably would have had to have really worked to amass a, a considerable porn collection because there were some fairly strict laws about that kind of stuff back in the day. So um, that's really uh, interesting. That um, that certainly uh, that certainly does uh, show a certain fanaticism with collecting porn in that particular era. Yeah, no, that uh, really is an excellent point. That you know the kind of uh, interest and also potentially connections you would need to get that in the first place are certainly not common of the era. And of course speaks to the type of man that Sam Cowell was as well. And yeah, like I said, you know, Bundy had a very, very glowing opinion of his grandfather who he was told back then was his father, but no, pretty much no one else in the family shared that. And like I said, even raised suspicions that Sam Cowell was in fact the father of Ted Bundy through uh, rape of his daughter, Louise. Now that that was one theory of that was one theory of the parentage. Another theory of the parentage actually came up in uh, FBI documents that were released uh, not too long ago in one of the so-called you know the vault documents. In back in '91, which was a couple years after Bundy was executed on Florida death row, a woman by the name of uh, Janla Carr, that's a C A R R, basically said that her father uh, Thomas Dowling Carr was. Ted Bundy's father, who went by the name Jack Worthington, was in the area at the time. Uh, she gave a whole accounting of this to FBI interrogators, basically said that, uh, pretty much said that uh, actually he still, her father, Thomas Dallincar, still maintains some level of a relationship and association with Louise from time to time, and even visited her occasionally in Pennsylvania, even after she had moved away to Tacoma, Washington, which took place several years after Bundy's birth, that uh, she was a presence in her life known by Aunt Eleanor. He, uh, she you know, basically claimed that her father went, her father went by the name of, uh, of Lloyd Nelson and also by Jack Worthington, you know, that he had letters from Luis that were addressed as such. They had an army jacket with the surname of Nelson, which is rather interesting because 
at one point uh, between Ted Bundy's birth and Ted Bundy and uh, and Louise moving out of her family home in Philadelphia to go to Tacoma, Washington and sort of start a new life. At one point, uh, she just abruptly changed her surname from Cowell to Nelson. And there was no real indication of where the surname Nelson came from. But if it had something to do with her uh, liaison that resulted in Ted Bunny's birth in the first place, then what Jan LeCar was saying about her father using an employed Nelson certainly fits very well. Now, Jan Lacar made claims that, uh, you know, that she was that she was around Bundy at certain points during the time that they were both young. That she, you know, that there were occasionally visits between her family and between Luis and Ted, and that she saw him in his youth. Uh, she claimed that she witnessed Bundy doing some sadistic things, like at one point pushing a child in the path of a train, who then got killed. She claims to uh, then run into Bundy again a couple years later in his teen years and at this point Louise had moved away to uh to Tacoma Washington had met a uh, former military veteran by the name of John uh Johnny Culpepper Bundy and so and she, she basically married him and changed her changed the family name to Bundy so that's where Ted Bundy came from and at a certain point in Bundy's teen years uh he reportedly stole a car in Tacoma and drove it all the way back out to uh believe Pittsburgh and ended up seeing and then and so Janla claimed to have seen Bundy there again and then she claimed to have seen Bundy once again in 1969 at Temple University and Bundy had been back there in Pennsylvania attending Temple University and she claimed to have seen him at a party where he confessed to even more murders that he had been involved in. So there were a lot of Janla's story is very interesting and does match up with uh, some of what's known about Bundy and even some of the more obscure facts like uh, the the Nelson surname that Louise Cowell had briefly adopted in her life. Of course, at the same time, it's information that could have been gleaned publicly through sources that were published about Bundy. So it's unclear how much it is verifiable. I will note that she showed the FBI a picture of what her father looked like in 1946, and they did confirm that uh, he bore a resemblance to Bundy. That was the opinion of the FBI interrogators who were interviewing her then. And uh, ultimately, and ultimately, the way that uh, she also claimed that her both her father and Ted Bundy practiced hypnotism, which is also rather interesting in light of some of the suspicions brought up in Program to Kill and elsewhere that there was some kind of mind control theme in the background of this a whole of, of Bundy's own life and family dynamic. She claimed that her father and Ted Bundy both hypnotized her at various points to forget information about Bundy. Now, the way that uh, the stories of these two people ended was rather uh, bizarre. In, in on January 31st, 1997, she ended up supposedly committing suicide by throwing herself in front of a train. She had before then been staying in mental institutions for years. She had a very strange relationship with her father, claimed he was abusive, but also had him paying for her apartment. So they had some kind of tie or love-hate relationship in a way. But yeah, ultimately she supposedly committed suicide, and then her father, Thomas Dowling Carr, ended up believing that this was the work of some government plot, and he was obsessed with this, believed that high-level political figures had caused the death of his daughter, and he was pretty much ranting and raving and trying to uncover that for a while, and then almost, and then literally the next year, only one day before the anniversary of his daughter's death, he also supposedly committed suicide, him by gunshot. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a weird 
side story to the whole thing, but no matter what uh, form of Bundy's ultimate you know, parentage was the truth, whether it was Sam Cowell, whether it was this uh, bizarre you know, Thomas Dowling Carr, you know, there is no doubt that Bundy's early life was filled with this kind of uh, sick and twisted family dynamics. And of course, you know, although information about Bundy's early activities, what he was up to is hard to verify definitively, there are, of course, many claims from family members about the sick things that he was up to, you know, including uh, at one point threatening his aunt, you know, at a very young age, supposedly, you know, po posing knives around his, his aunt while she was sleeping. And then she woke up and saw him smiling, the claims of torturing local animals, like you claim, and also a number of things in his juvenile record that have, of course, been sealed. So we don't know what they are definitively, but uh, what has been alleged about Bundy includes that he would commit voyeurism, you know, being a peeping Tom, but also commit and also commit auto theft, like I said before. So right from the start, Bundy had a uh, very much decidedly mixed upbringing. He didn't exactly have the best role models or the best start in life to begin with. And so he was pretty much going on a path of uh, engaging in various types of depravity right from the start. So now you're saying that his mother was from the Pennsylvania area then originally, correct? Yeah, family was, uh, I believe, Philadelphia-based. And yeah, she was up in Burlington, Vermont when she had Bundy, but she ultimately ended up moving back in with the with her own family to raise him for a couple of years. Then after that, she uh, she went out to Tacoma, Washington to pretty much get away from it. And that's when the name Ted Bundy ultimately arose. The, the uh, Pennsylvania connection is very interesting, um, you know, and, and not to keep beating a dead horse, but obviously Shikshini, Pennsylvania uh, was the headquarters of the original Sovereign Order of St. John. Um, so there has always been a really strong uh, presence with those types in the Pennsylvania area for many years. Um, interestingly, too, um, there was a woman from a town or a city, I think it was a little north of uh, Philadelphia, maybe it was Reading, Pennsylvania. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, her name, she had a lot of aliases, but uh, usually she went by Heidi Rannikin, I believe. And uh, she, well, there's very compelling evidence that she was involved in a, um, a call girl ring uh, that was operating out of the Watergate uh, office building prior to the famous break-in uh, during the early 1970s uh, and had potentially entrapped some prominent politicians, uh, both Democrats, but even a few Republicans as well. Of course, there are some very uh, compelling accounts out there that that was one of the underlining factors of the Watergate break-in uh, was to assess possibly who was compromised by Heidi. Uh, but her black book is really interesting. Um, her whole family upbringing is also very curious. I believe her um, father was a German immigrant. Um, certainly this, you know, he would have come over around the World War II era. So that, you know, raises the possibility as to whether or not he was fleeing from something. Um, I do believe there was also a strange history of sexual abuse. And um, Heidi certainly became a rather celebrated prostitute, shall we say, uh, renowned yeah. for her skills. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting when you sort of look at some of the characters that uh, turn up in that uh, particular region of the country and uh, where they end up later in life. <laughs> yeah, and uh, let's just say Pennsylvania will come up uh, at least once more in this story. And also, water, a lot of the figures from Watergate, incidentally, were themselves from 
the the Seattle area to begin with. You know, figures like oh, Ewell Croak, who ran the Plumbers. He was a University of Washington alum, and uh, I believe John John Ehrlichman, the White House Counsel. He was he was also from Seattle. I think he was actually sort of a mentor figure to Croak. So yeah, a lot of the Watergate people do actually originate there, so, which is rather you know rather interesting about the way that similar. Yes scenarios keep turning up and you know correspondence and parallels with each other absolutely um and i mean just certainly watergate is so criminally overlooked too i mean it's not as sexy as the kennedy assassination or some of the other deep events from that era but there's um there's a lot of interesting figures in it and it does kind of tie together some interesting pieces um but before i forget too so uh you mentioned uh one of Bundy's possible parentage, uh, possible fathers, uh, had the last name Carr with the double R. Uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, fans out there, Murray Terry and so forth, are wondering if you've found any connections to uh, Sam Carr and uh, his children who were uh, implicated in the Son of Sam uh, cult. No, I have not. Believe me, that was one of the first things that crossed my mind as well, but I couldn't find any sort of direct indication of that. You know, I can note that certainly the when you talk about Sam Carr and his children, uh, the same kind of love-hate relationship appears to between him and his sons as well. You know, he was also described as abusive, yet his sons would often, you know, still stay with him. They would still, you know, look after him in life and uh, really couldn't distance themselves from him, even though some pretty horrific abuse was described. And I should note about the son of Sam case, you know, no one has really raised the question of whether the cars themselves brothers themselves were the subjects of intergenerational abuse, and that might be part of what steered them in the direction of a cult, uh, of this sort of Son of Sam murder cult that they were all uh, alleged to be involved in. And uh, yeah, not to get too far afield, but yes, I did look into whether there was a family connection there. It's an interesting possibility. Couldn't find one, though. Uh, And I do also want to give a shout out to Jan Kowalski on the program to kill uh, .net forum to be the one who first brought Jan LeCar to my attention. They're the one who found this information. A very, very interesting uh, side aspect of the whole Bundy story. Whether or not it turns out to be true, it is a, a very interesting allegation worthy of any further investigation, including whether there may be a link to the more infamous Carr family. Absolutely. And as you said, it is uh, fascinating to see how the intergenerational abuse uh, seems to turn up in so many of the figures in these tales. Um, <clears throat> but okay, so let's get on here to uh, Ted's education. Now, he reportedly went to Stanford for a time. Uh, yes, the one in uh, the Bay Area. But not much is written about that. Can you get into a bit of some of the institutions that he's been linked to prior to uh, the University of Washington? Yeah, certainly. He... So after Bundy completed his high school education, he uh, first he went to the University of Puget Sound uh, in you know up there in the Seattle area, starting in 1965, and not clear whether he was actually majoring anything yet, maybe just, you know going into college to get into college. But he very quickly after that point seemed to develop an interest in uh, Chinese studies, studying and learning the Chinese language, which is I should note a rather sort of uncommon interest for anyone, but he seemed very fascinated by it. So he transferred the following year in 1966 to the University of Washington for his first stint there. It would not be his last stint there, but he transferred to the University of Washington to study Chinese. And then the following year, he actually got some sort of scholarship that allowed him to go to Stanford in 1967 for a summer course there. So he was studying Chinese for 
uh, some time. It's not exactly clear where the interest came from. And he ne- reportedly lost the interest rather quickly. You know, he is said to have never completed his class at Stanford. And then Chinese language studies don't really come up again in his, uh, his path, his resume. Although I should note that there's all a bit, little bit of evidence that's come up in law enforcement files that somewhat contradicts that, that uh, basically the father of one of uh, Ted Bundy's later uh, later girlfriends, a man by the name of Dr. Russell Hurst, that's spelled H-I-R-S-T, uh, he, he would actually claim to law enforcement, and this was repeated in documents about a, uh, one of the Ted Bundy summits in November of 1975, that Ted Bundy knew, quote, many foreign dialogues, unquote. So Ted Bundy had apparently been able to pick up a number of foreign languages, not just one foreign language. He knew several of them, which I think may indicate that the stories about the extent to which uh, the extent to which he didn't really show an interest in uh, you know continued interest in the topic may not be entirely accurate and there certainly is no accounting I'm aware of, of how he would have come to know multiple foreign languages and of course it is worth noting that uh, multiple that several of these schools that I just mentioned do have a record of uh, association with intelligence you know intelligence operations the intelligence community. University of Washington, which I just mentioned that. There are a couple interesting personnel there. One of them is uh, Dr. Roy Prosterman of the law program there. And he did a number of things. He actually wrote sort of the the quasi-legal justification for the infamous Phoenix program in Vietnam. Basically came up with the, you know, came up with it under the sort of humanitarian guise of land reform, agricultural development, and pretty much was one of the main architects of it. And one of his students in the law program was none other than, than Eagle Krogh, who I just mentioned, the former former head of the water of the uh, the Watergate plumbers, you know, the unit that was working under Nixon's administration to stop leaks, and that was incidentally filled with CIA personnel. Uh, and Krogh himself, although it's very rarely talked about, was himself very strongly linked to CIA operations. There are multiple accounts buried in some of the more alternative Watergate narratives of Krogh, you know, carrying gold bullion to drug lords in the Golden Triangle to pay them off, that he would travel on CIA planes to do this. And this is one of the, so certainly that's one of the mysterious, set of mysterious characters that come out of the University of Washington. And also they had a professor in the psychology department, Dr. Donald Dudley, who was known to be involved in MKUltra. In fact, one of his former patients basically sued him a number of years later for forcing, you know, drug experiments on them to try to turn them into a programmed killer. So University of Washington undoubtedly had this history of intelligence involvement. And then of course, Stanford University right there in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area is in the thick of so many of these weird cults, especially back then at the time in the the late 1960s and uh, leading into the early 70s. There was a doctor there named Dr. Donald Lund who showed up in multiple serial killer, uh, multiple serial killer cases from that time you know, that are talked about in Dave McGowan's book and was routinely, you know, suppo- was basically a supposed defense uh, expert, but actually always delivered testimony that would very strongly favor the prosecution and pretty much railroad his own clients who he was supposed to be helping. There was, of course, the infamous Arliss Perry murder that occurred on the Stanford University campus in 
1974, a couple years later, that has allegedly been closed uh, and linked to the security guard back in 2018, although there are, were conflicting accounts before then that hit the security guard's DNA had already been tested and was not a match for the DNA found on Arliss. And of course, uh, Maury Terry's work had previously uh, suggested a, a link between the son of Sam Paul and Arliss Carey's murder. So just, you know, the, both of these institutions that Bundy attended and uh, studied foreign languages at were certainly both have the specter of intelligence community involvement as if they're sort of a preparatory location for people who may be getting into that line of work. Now, did the University of Washington have ties um, to the early ARPANET stuff? I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, I can't remember either. That would not surprise me, though. It seems like one of the institutions yeah. that certainly would. And yeah, um, looking it up, it, it does seem that, yeah, they did. So, wow. Yeah, that's uh, interesting in light, obviously. We'll, we'll get to this when we get into Utah, but uh, Bundy would also later have uh, ties to another uh, university linked to that. And um, I should probably point out, I mean, you know, when most people think about these mind control type uh, programs, quote unquote, they usually think of the CIA programs like MKUltra, but um. There were a lot of these programs going around and quite a few of them uh, only were tangibly connected to the CIA and some none at all. Uh, one of the more interesting ones was actually being run by DARPA and uh, it was tied into uh, the creation of the internet essentially. Uh, it was uh, the based upon behavioral sciences. Essentially they uh, wanted to use an early version of the ARPANET to compile data on people to uh, compile personality profiles to uh, see if they could more uh, benevolently uh, manage society and that type of thing, which uh, incidentally is remarkably like what Cambridge Analytica would do many years later. So um, yeah, this kind of thing was already kind of baked into the, uh, the early internet from the beginning. Uh, if anybody doesn't believe me, I would recommend checking out Surveillance ba uh, Valley ASAP um, by Yasha Levin, I believe, which is just an absolutely pivotal and uh, great book. But yes, yeah. on that note, though, we need to get back on topic. All right. So how about uh, the Republican Party? Uh, Bundy apparently became involved with the Republican Party at a pretty young age. So could you take us through those connections? Certainly. Yeah, Bundy his sort of, you know, first uh, set of stints get being involved in college pretty much ended around 1968. He just dropped out. And at the same time, he was starting to become very publicly interested in politics for the first time. And he really rose to some rather improbable heights, very uh, prominent, uh, amassed a series of very prominent political connections. And I just want to say, of course, you know, there's nothing uh, partisan about any of this. There are other serial killers who have the same political level of political connections to the Democratic Party. You know, John Wayne Gacy being the archetypal example of that. And of course, uh, I believe many people here also recognize that the division between these parties is somewhat of a sham in the first place. But anyway, yes, Ted Bundy had a number of connections to, uh, to high level Republican politicians, both in the state of Washington and nationally. In 1968, he was a uh, a delegate for Nelson Rockefeller. He actually went to the Republican National Convention in Miami that year as a delegate for him. By some accounts, he also worked on Nelson Rockefeller's campaign in Washington state before then. At the same time, Bundy was also a, uh, he was also a bodyguard 
and also the driver for the Lieutenant Governor candidate, Art Fletcher, uh, was hailed as, he was uh, among other things, hailed as the father of affirmative action, which uh, set him apart from some of the other people in his party. But yeah, Bundy already just in 1968, a college dropout, no real apparent record uh, that would have, it would have been a real, you know, compelling cause to hire him in these capacities ended up becoming linked to not one, but two uh, prominent Republican politicians at the time. And I should note as well that his status of being a, uh, a bodyguard and a driver for Art Fletcher is somewhat of a parallel to another thing that's going on at the same time down in California. Uh, Richard, uh, Richard Nixon uh, had a, a local campaign, basically uh, someone who was running his local campaign effort in California at the time, and also in 1968 named Alan May, who would later, uh, Alan May would later go on to be an, another important uh, aide to Nixon, another sort of White House counsel figure underneath him. And Alan May had none other than Philip, the infamous Philip Arthur Thompson as his uh, driver at the time, even though Philip Arthur Thompson himself had no real qualifications for, for these political connections. He didn't really have anything other than a rap sheet for violent crimes that he'd been committing. And Philip Arthur Thompson will later go on to be a rather infamous uh, serial killer in California. He murdered Betty Cloyer in 1971, who was a drug informant. He murdered in 1975 a man by the name of Ronald Winter, who was about to testify about illegal weapons trafficking at Mather Air Force Base. In 1980, he uh, ran an apartment in San Francisco with a couple sick friends of his where they would throw uh, satanic parties by certain witness accounts with uh, bowls of cocaine and, you know, these rituals. And then a, a woman who was living there named Valerie McDonald, who was uncomfortable with the whole thing and was being inappropriately propositioned by these men and ended up vanishing and it later turned up very brutally murdered. And then after that, Philip Arthur Thompson went to work on the, uh, the Cabazon Reservation in Indio, California, Southern California, that was home to a lot of CIA-related weapons testing. This is the one that the, turns up in the octopus thing, right? Yeah, that's what Danny Castellar was looking at. This was where uh, Michael Riconosciuto uh, reportedly were, uh, was reportedly working to bug the Promise software for uh, for CIA espionage purposes, the same reservation. Philip Arthur Thompson was acting security there. And was, uh, was he connected to Wackenhunt then? Because I believe it was Wackenhunt that had the facility there, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it was a it was a joint venture between Wackenhunt and the Cabazon tribe, which had been pretty much fallen under the control of this unsavory figure named John Philip Nichols, who was pretty much acting on behalf of the CIA. Right, I think you mean Robert Booth Nichols, actually. Oh, no, there were two Nichols. Which oh, definitely... okay. <laughs> yeah, John Philip Nichols was the tribal administrator. And then there was another guy, Robert Booth Nichols, who was also in the story in another capacity. Yeah, that of... doesn't... Booth, Robert Booth Nichols was quite a grifter. And a lot of times these guys like to operate around people with similar names uh, to add to the confusion. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And I mean, Mike and uh, Michael Reconosciuto actually supplies another sort of connection. He was to also connected Washington. to uh, Washington State. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, he, uh, really, you know, his family originated from there. And I think his father. He actually uh, knew uh, Fred Lee Chrisman, uh, the one yeah, bishop in Seattle. Right. Yeah, I was about to say, I think his 
father, Marshall Reconosciuto, had something to do with Chrisman and maybe even the connected to the Maury Island UFO incident. Uh, yeah, he had heard some, and- yeah, he had heard some stories about uh, the Maury Island incidents uh, directly from Chrisman. Uh, for those of you uh, who are not familiar with this, Fred Lee Chrisman uh, was one of the first uh, witnesses for the modern UFO phenomenon. He was there for the Maury Island <clears throat> incident in Washington State, or uh, yeah, in Washington State by Puckett Sounds. Uh, along with Robert Dahl, I believe, uh, where they reportedly recovered uh, several pieces of slag and that type of thing. Um, Kenneth Arnold was later dispatched uh, by Ray Palmer, a famous publisher of Amazing Stories, to investigate this incident. And also two um, AFOSI officers, or guys who eventually became AFOSI officers, if I remember correctly. This was like right around the time uh, the Army Counterintelligence Corps uh, the army was uh, the army air force was separated from the army proper uh previously these guys had been army counterintelligence corps and then they you know became air force office of special investigation i think like on the day they died or some weird thing like that but anyway uh chrisman was there for that uh and then he later uh, got kind of tied into all these wandering bishop circles he turns up on uh, the jfk assassination connected to all that weird stuff going on at guy bannister's offices there the uh, private detective at least he had associates potentially who were linked into that so um it's a very colorful figure to uh, put it mildly yeah anyway uh you know not once again not to veer too far afield of what we were mentioning we can you know go through these connections for a long time but he ultimately bundy certainly is interesting that bundy paralleled what philip arthur thompson was doing at the exact same time both of them being uh you know drivers and potentially and likely offering security as well to pretty prominent political figures who, by all accounts, they had no real business being hired, except for the fact that uh, they may well have both been uh, recent, you know, associates of int- the intelligence community. Philip Arthur Thompson, I should note, was, you know, a hitman for these forces as his position on the Cavazon Reservation evidences. He uh, was associated with people like Luis Posada Carriles, the uh, you know, sort of Cuban exile who was involved in a lot of these terrorist plots. And you know, Philip Arthur Thompson undoubtedly had these kinds of CIA connections. And Ted Bundy, of course, just having come out of all of these uh, intelligence-connected universities, it raises another interesting parallel of itself. Now, after Bundy's uh, time, after Bundy did this in 1968, he started to somewhat pursue an education again. He went to Temple University in uh, Pennsylvania for one semester in uh, 1969. This matches up with when Jan LeCar supposedly ran into him yet again. Then he uh, came back to Seattle after that and he ended up having a meeting. He ended up meeting this girl named, uh, named Liz Klopfer, uh, spelled K-L-O-E-P-F-E-R. Uh, she was a, at the time a secretary at the University of Washington Medical School. So, you know, once again, we have a connection to UW, specifically to, uh, you know, their medical field, which, of course, was steeped in some of these uh, unsavory activities, including mind control, as I mentioned. And Liz herself happened to be the daughter of a, uh, the daughter of a doctor from Ogden, Utah. You know, he was part of a very wealthy uh, and prominent family there. He was a member of the LDS Church, as uh, prominent people from the, that area often are. He's uh, Dr. Russell Hurst, as I previously mentioned. He was had a number of uh, 
prominent you know, connections. He was the city physician of Ogden, so basically the medical examiner, founded a local surgical society. He had a son, incidentally, who was a spent a year out in Vietnam from 1967 to 1968 as a battalion surgeon for wounded soldiers there. So following his father's footsteps and also, you know, being another connection to the Vietnam War, which through connections like the Phoenix program often shows up a lot in the background of these serial killer cases. So anyway, around this point, Bundy decided to go back into, uh, back into college, went back, to, went to University of Washington again, this time enrolled as a psychology major. So he began studying the field of psychology. And of course, members of the psychology department at UWASH were some of them were directly implicated in these sorts of mind control uh, research programs. So at, while Bundy was uh, pursuing his degree there, he also he was also up to a couple other things. He started working at the, uh, at the Seattle Crisis Center, this suicide hotline basically, in I believe it was uh, 1971. And when he started working at this, it was part of the sort of like work study internship thing to help support himself through college. And of course had a uh, bit of a parallel to what he was doing and majoring in psychology. When he was there, he ended up meeting a woman by the name of Anne Rule. Uh, and Anne Rule, many people will recognize the name because she later went on to be Ted, Bund one of uh, the major chroniclers of Ted Bundy. Uh, she was rather, you know, became rather famous for that because she actually knew this person and was friends with Ted Bundy for years before he turned out to be the perpetrator of the murders that she was writing about. So, you know, she came from a family full of law enforcement people out in Michigan. Her grandfather and her uncle were both sheriffs in Michigan. Uh, she had a cousin who was a prosecutor. So she was from in law enforcement from the beginning, very interested in the field. She majored in uh, creative writing, with, but also minored in criminology and psychology. And she even worked at the Seattle Police Department for a bit, but had to be let go because of her uh, nearsightedness, uh, supposedly. And then she went into the uh, crime writing field. She wrote for a very sort of pulpy, sensationalized magazine called True Detective, writing these true crime stories, and also had some of her work published by more mainstream outlets as well. And then, yeah, she herself ended up at the uh, Seattle Crisis Center, working right alongside someone who was, uh, I think, a couple decades younger than her, Ted Bundy. And one of the interesting things that she even admits to in her book and sort of just casually drops is that even before their alleged first meeting in, uh, in 1971, that she and Ted Bundy had often lived in the same state at the same time as each other, not just once, but multiple times. So they just happened to be in the same area several, you know, multiple times after each other, and yet allegedly never crossed paths until then, which is a rather curious uh, correspondence and has led many people to have a suspicion that Anne Rule may have been one of Bundy's handlers in a certain capacity. Uh, whatever extent that is uh, true or not really is probably almost impossible to prove, but it's certainly an interesting and worthwhile thing to bring up about Bundy's history nonetheless. Now, anyway, while he was in the middle of his, uh, while he was in the middle of, of his psychology, he, you know, he was in contact with uh, various, he was in contact with various, uh, you know, doctors, people, and people in that field to do certain 
research projects for them. One of uh, one of the things that he came at least in uh, close association with was this institution called Camelot House, uh, which was this sort of experimental school for uh, for quote unquote retarded kids. This was a, a project that a couple of uh, people of uh, people in the UWASH psychology department were working on. It was founded by Dr. Sandy Martin and then uh, taken on by a Dr. Scott Frazier. There was uh, one account, incidentally, there was one account in uh, Seattle Police Documents that Bundy actually worked on a project for the Camelot House founder, Dr. Sandy Martin, alongside a girl named Linda Healy, who would later become one of Bundy's first victims in Pacific Northwest. Now, whether that's true or not, it also confirmed that Bundy did work for a uh, for a Dr. Scott for a Dr. Scott Frazier. Uh, basically, did a research thesis for him. And uh, while he was doing the thesis, he was advised by another person in the psychology department, Dr. Patricia Lunaborg, spelled L-U-N-E-B-O-R-G. And uh, late, uh, later, Patricia Lunaborg, when she was asked about Bundy, would basically say, you know, there's no way Bundy could be involved in these murders. She was pretty adamantly sticking up for him, saying he was falsely accused. And, you know, according to one witness, Patricia Lunaborg had a great interest in Ted Bundy's career, whatever that means, you know, but she appeared to be very, Bundy certainly got very close to at least some of his uh, psychology professors at the University of Washington. Patricia Lunaborg was a member of the American Psychological Association, uh, an organization which I should note has been alleged to have been, you know, pretty much co-opted long ago by the CIA as part of their uh, goal to both, you know, dominate the sort of mind control research, but also to change the narrative about memories and about uh, child abuse to introduce concepts like false memory syndrome and you know generally discrediting witnesses to these horrible things that happened to them so she was part of this organization the, the APA she was also very interested in uh, women policing and she was part of the International Association of Women Police so had a law enforcement association as well now anyway Bundy uh, pretty much I mean, Bundy was pretty much uh, finishing up his, uh, really finishing up his degree by 1972. And over the summer of 1972, he actually worked, ironically enough, as a mental health counselor at Harborview Hospital, which was run by the University of Washington. And during this time, he was alleged to have been involved in stealing a number of uh, patient files, you know, that there were patients of a Dr. Jim McDermott. So Bundy was allegedly involved in a, a major breach of you know, patient privacy while he was supposed to be a, a counselor to these people. So you know, once again, you know, he, he's very close to a lot of, uh, a lot of sensitive stuff. And, uh, but what makes it particularly interesting is that Jim McDermott was actually at the time running, for, uh, running in the uh, Washington gubernatorial primary was uh, he was running the Democratic primary against Albert Rossellini. And then in, uh, at the same time, uh, Daniel J. Evans was running in, as a Republican candidate. And Bundy in 1972 would get his next sort of major break in the, politi in the political world that he would, uh, he was part of the reelection campaign for Dan Evans. And in, as part of doing so, he was working as a spy on the opposition, you know, pretty much admitted officially acknowledge even that he was literally a spy. You know, he would go to Albert Rossellini's 
uh, you know, I would roughly use campaign functions and uh, pretty much be recording them. I think at one point, even it was documenting some kind of you know, extramarital liaison that Rossellini was uh, part of, basically was doing his part as a very clandestine intelligence type way to help ensure Dan Evans' victory. And of course, the, the fact that Bundy happened to get uh, involved at the Harborview Hospital and then steal the uh, psychological patient details of people who uh, were counseled by the by Albert Rossellini's primary opponent raised another question about the level of which Bundy was potentially acting as a uh, rather unethical, deep cover type of spy on these political campaigns. And uh, his theft of these files really never talked about any other chronicles of, uh, of Ted Bundy's, you know, of Ted Bundy's life. You won't really see it in the true crime books, but it's right there in black and white in the Seattle Police Department documents on the case. And I want to give another shout out to uh, the YouTube channel, Aryan Empire's Infinity for being uh, the first uh, the first individual to spot this in the police documents. But anyway, yeah, you know, Bundy assisted in the re-election campaign of Dan Evans. And then after that, he uh, next year became a special assistant to the state Republican chairman, Ross Davis. He was, was at the level where he would you know, go to dinners with Ross Davis. He would even get to babysit Davis's children. So he was very much in at that point. Bundy was well on the fast track to uh, you know, political, you know, political connections. And one has to think that, you know, his life could have even gone to the level of he might have ascended into politics himself if his life had taken a slightly different tack. And in any event, uh, at around that time, Bundy began to get an interest in uh, following up his, uh, his education with a law degree. And uh, he ended up applying to, ended up applying to the University of uh, Puget Sound and a uh, real a major factor in getting into that, getting into law school really was the fact that he had these political, uh, politically prominent figures in the area sticking up for him. So he got into U Puget Sound and uh, started to, you know, pursue a law degree there. But of course he would, he would basically barely attend any of his classes. His mind was clearly preoccupied elsewhere. And uh, one of the final sort of interesting things about this time is that uh, when Bundy began his uh, schooling out there in 1973 at the University of Puget Sound, he roomed with an individual named John Edward Muller, uh, who was a uh, had a private security guard license and also happened to be working security on behalf of the State Department. He was in, he was down in Australia, uh, providing support to Operation Deep Freeze, which is the uh, the mission to Antarctica, which very uh, very sort of interesting. Uh, role for him to be playing. And one friend of uh, John Edward Muller actually said that his State Department assignment may have possibly been a CIA assignment. So Bundy was at the time rooming with someone who was close to the intelligence community and possibly even working directly for them at the time. That's right when he's uh, beginning his law school career and right at the time before his uh, first murders attributed to him are officially about to start. Yeah, that is absolutely fascinating. Well, do you want to take us through that then uh, when Bundy uh, began his killing spree and uh, his other adventures in the Northwest during that time? Sure, yeah. You know, there are a lot of rumors about people who Bundy may have murdered prior to the first ones that are officially recognized, uh, including, you know, some of the ones that Jan, Le that Jan LeCar claimed Bundy related to him. But in terms of what is absolutely confirmed, 
the very first uh, murders that can really be linked to Bundy all occur in 1974, right? At, starting at the beginning uh, with, uh, with the aforementioned Linda Healy, who was a student at the University of Washington, a fellow psychology uh, student alongside Bundy who worked at the Camelot House place that I mentioned. And she, uh, you know, she was murdered and you know, she had shared a house with multiple people and whoever broke into her house uh, supposedly you know, was able to get there quietly you know, go through, not, not get, not make any noise, not get noticed by anyone else in the house, and then was able to, you know, murder her, you know, her, uh, beat her to death, you know, without any, you know, without anyone noticing at all. So right then and there, and you already have the appearance of some kind of very uh, practiced professional operation going on. You know, there was no real, no witness to any of what happened. There was no possible way to identify a killer. The person whoever did this was basically a ghost. And uh, that followed, the, that pattern would pretty much continue on for a number of these other murders. You know, starting in the first half of 1974, there was just an epidemic of you know, women, young women, college-age women in the area turning up murdered. Uh, and it was pretty much the same kind of, same kind of pattern that led investigators to believe there was a connection, but in terms of actual evidence that they could get in any of these cases, there was very little that, uh, that could really be, uh, that could really be found out. You know, one of the, in total, there were, I believe, you know, eight, I think, uh, yeah, eight women who were all, uh, all murdered in this area, all, all in the span of February, 1974 to July of 1974. And all of these murders would ultimately be linked to Ted Bundy, though he was never charged with or you know convicted of any of them. Now, there are a couple. One of the so one of the common themes that was seen in several of these uh, killings was that before some some of these uh, young women had been in the company of a man who was you know, wearing a, a cast, you know, sling on his arm, was appearing to be injured. Uh, that was sort of the last sighting that some people had of them. But of course, there were also just instances where these women just vanished completely and no one saw anything at all. So that, that but that was really the only clue to go on the whole arm casting, which later would become one of the sort of archetypal things that people remembered about Ted Bundy's apparent MO. Now, one of the uh, murders that there actually is some reasonable amount of uh, you know, greater information and insight on actually sheds a whole lot of light on what the whole phenomenon of these, you know, missing and murdered women may have been about. Uh, and that is the case of Donna Gill Manson, who disappeared on March 12, 1974. She was the victim after Linda Healy. And uh, Donna Gill Manson attended the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, the state capital. She, she, she was a fascinating person for a number of reasons. She was very interested in occult-related topics, you know, she, you know, like magic, alchemy. She was very all fascinated by death in general. There was one anecdote that somebody in police files, you know, had related that at one point on the campus, they were showing, you know, they were showing some movie about death in one of her classes, and she was upset that she had to miss that movie. And she, her interest in these sorts of topics extended to, you know, actually getting involved with people in groups that uh, really pursued them quite heavily. According to Ann Rule's book, there were pamphlets in Donna Gilmanson's room for this organization called Thought Power Inc., 
also known as the Institute of ESP. Now, uh, for whatever reason, AMRUL did not get the correct name for this. Uh, it actually turned out to be the Institute of Insight as confirmed by the, uh, the police files on the Donagel Massive murder. But in any case, you know, this, this sort of institution, the Institute of Insight was a, a rather weird one. It was, it branched off of this organization, a larger nationwide organization called Silva Mind Control. There was some kind of split over it. And the Silva Mind Control was all about this idea of, you know, using the power of your mind to, uh, you know, manifest, you know, manifest into the real world. And there are some accounts I've seen, I have to dig them out again, that silver mind control is being used in some kind of MKUltra type thing to create super soldiers. But in any case, yeah. yeah I think you know, Adrena Puhari could actually been interested in the silver mind control method, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, that is interesting. <clears throat> and yeah, I, I feel bad for not having that on hand. But yeah, I'm pretty sure that silver mind control absolutely has come up in this kind of context before. And this Institute of Insight that Donna Gilmanson had papers on in her possession was a split off group of this. And they had all these seminars, you know, some basically their sort of course schedule was even, uh, there was a photocopy of it included in the police files as part of their investigation. And they had all sorts of things, topics like, man, you know, just manifesting your consciousness. They had stuff on astrology. They were, interestingly enough, using various theosophical terms like ascended masters, uh, they had a logo, which was the, the Maltese cross, which was also used by the orders of St. John. And they actually had a direct mention of the cross of Malta. So you know, there's already some you know, interesting parallels between this group and a lot of the things that uh, you yourself, Stephen, have investigated for a while. And that we uh, have both investigated as uh, you know, ourselves as part of the White Eagle Underground that we discussed in a previous show. Uh, and it's also curious is that one of the instructors at the thought at thought power or sorry the institute of insight uh, uh 12 days after donna's disappearance he was down in brownsville texas teaching a class uh for his organization in brownsville texas is right across the border from matamoros which is a location where uh you know, basically it was the location of a uh, satanic cult involved in narcotics trafficking run by adolfo constanzo that, that itself appeared to be very strongly linked to the Chicago mob and the U.S. intelligence community and was, of course, basically a sort of hitman type group for the Mexican drug cartels. So that's a rather interesting place for the Institute of Insight to be operating. But anyway, yeah, Donna was seemingly interested in this group. And then at the same time, Donna was, Donna was so interested in the, the stuff, magic, sorcery, witchcraft, and that she wanted to do a research project on it as part of her education at the Evergreen State College. And so Donna was told uh, to seek advisement from a figure who is familiar to both of us and probably to some, many of the listeners out there by the name of Richard Allen Miller, who was the, at the time, the uh, apparent uh, Northwest Regional Director of Mankind Research Unlimited, which was itself a, basically an intelligence front, an apparent naval intelligence front that was doing uh, parapsychology research likely as part of the uh, CIA's own efforts, like MK Often, that were looking into parapsychological topics at the time. So Donna Gilmanson was pretty much recommended due to her interest in all the stuff, magic and sorcery and witchcraft, to go to uh, Richard Allen Miller, who was 
who he was on the experimental campus at the University of Washington. So not the campus itself, but a sort of offshoot building that was still affiliated with UWASH. But once again, University of Washington comes up in the story, even for a even for a, a woman who was not actually going there at the time. So Donna Gilmanson was very interested in these parapsychological topics to the point where she was uh, she was interested in this Institute of Insight. She was networking with Richard Allen Miller. And actually, uh, Richard, according to one person who knew her and their statement is in the police files as well, Richard Allen Miller was apparently such a magnetic and compelling person that she was considering transferring to the University of Washington because of her ability to pursue this thing with him. Now, among other things with Donna Gilmanson, there was a uh, one witness connected her to the Symbionese Liberation Army, which is also well known as uh, among these many of these research circles as being a likely uh, CIA plot that a a man by the name of Colston Westbrook, who had served in the Phoenix program, came basically pretty much came back. He was leading this uh, Black Cultural Association at the Vacaville Prison in California, and basically got molded Donald DeFries, who was a former LAPD informant, who, you know, into the man who would ultimately become Cinque, the uh, leader of the Symbionese Liberation Army, pretty much formed him into this fake black radical who was actually just working on behalf of the intelligence services. So Don, the Symbionese Liberation Army was, uh, uh, you know, was very, almost certainly this intelligence front meant to, you know, increase, increase, uh, you know, increase public division and also demonize the you know black you know the black militant uh left and donna was reportedly connected with some people at in the sla even though uh she was a, co a couple states north of where the sla's main region of operation would have been now so it's she has a number though, with um <clears throat> bundy's connection to stanford because i mean this is all like in the san francisco area where the sla was based on of yeah, absolutely yeah, I mean, there seems to be a, a decent amount of correspondence between the, the scene and the all this weirdness in California, the, especially in the Bay Area, and between the Seattle region as well. And a, a figure that we'll get to a bit later, uh, Thomas Creech, another sort of serial killer allegedly connected to these cults, was himself uh, linked to the SLA as well. He, uh, at least by his account, he claimed that he was supplied drugs to... Uh, by one of his organized crime handlers to deliver to an SLA safe house in San Francisco where he saw Patty Hearst, the person who they had kidnapped and brainwashed. So yeah, the SLA is another thing that kind of shows up multiple times in connection with these uh, Pacific Northwest area uh, cult organizations that are, you know, that are alleged to be part of this. Now, in terms of Donna Gilmanson's actual uh, fate, ultimately, Although it is assumed by a lot of, by, you know, that these people, that these women who were, who disappeared uh, and were attributed to Bundy were murdered immediately, there are definite signs that Donica Manson did not get killed immediately. There were multiple witness sightings in, uh, in these files that show that she was alive months later after her uh, disappearance, that there was a sighting of her in May of 1974, like I think May, around May 30th, with some kind of hippie type in Vancouver, so in, in British Columbia, just north of the uh, Canadian-U.S. border, there was she was in July of 1974 seen at a party with this motorcycle gang called the Tribe, and also in May of 1974, she actually you know ran into somebody who 
and you know, ran it ran into somebody and basically uh, who recognized her, who later would recognize her and report this. And she said, you know, I'm staying with a guy named Ted. Now that's particularly interesting that she would say that because uh, at the time, at the time this was reported, May of 1974, there was absolutely no indication that any person named Ted had anything to do with these cases. That would come about a few months later. So for somebody to directly state that, uh, that you know, this victim, Donna Gail Manson, was apparently in association with a guy named Ted before anyone had any reason to think that anyone named Ted was part of these cases, I think is very powerful. And it could be a coincidence, certainly, but it's uh, a bit too coincidental for my liking, I have to say. What's also interesting at the same time is that uh, she had, Donna Gilmanton maintained a number of notebooks, uh, personal notebooks of herself, and she, uh, one of them mentions a person named, you know, Gimli, G-I-M-L-I, who had a broken hand cast. So basically she describes somebody who was apparently uh, using the same kind of, uh, presenting the same kind of appearance that Ted Bundy was for his reported ruse that he would use to lure in victims, which is also fascinating. And then perhaps the most, the final witness count that really shows uh, something strange about the, strange about the whole uh, thing is that there was one person who was an acquaintance of a man by a man named Steve Brown. Uh, and this person who related his witness account basically said, yeah, you know, I, Steve Brown talked about a friend uh, from Tacoma named Ted Bundy. And he, basically this witness account goes on to state that, uh, that there was a party at the at Steve Brown's dorm, that Ted Bundy was there, and there was also some girl there who had, uh, from Olympia, who uh, they said had venereal disease, which according to uh, the police documents, Donna Gilmanson did act, in fact have venereal disease at the time. Uh, you're not, obviously not to judge her or anything. You know, she did live a somewhat uh, free will and promiscuous life and she did have venereal disease at the time. And so uh, Bundy, Reportedly, according to the witness account, went home with this girl who had VD at the time. Uh, Steve Brown basically warned his acquaintance who was giving this witness account not to associate with her because she had VD. But anyway, that's the account of basically seeing uh, Donna Gomez supposedly attended this sort of party uh, at the dorm of Steve Brown. And she came into contact with Ted Bundy and also other people in his social circle as well. And the same witness account goes on to talk about how Steve Brown and Ted Bundy were involved together in some sort of dope dealing enterprise and even talks about how Steve Brown basically alludes to having committed a murder with Ted Bundy over a dope deal gone wrong. So that's, there's also an indication in here that Ted Bundy uh, did work with other people for some of the murders that he uh, committed and some of them were drug related. You know, that's another thing that is absolutely never talked about in any mainstream chronicles about Ted Bundy. It's always that he's the lone killer and that there is no real motive outside of his own psychological deficiencies. But here you have a witness account right there in the files on Donna Gil Manson's uh, disappearance that Bundy was with, was working with others and that he would have some kind of drug trafficking operation going on, which is very fascinating and often very rarely remarked on. Uh, now, what also comes up in these files and Donna Manson has to do with another one of Bundy's victims, actually the victim who disappeared after uh, Donna Manson by the name of Susan Rainport, uh, who attended another uh, Central Washington, I think Central Washington State College, and uh, she had a sister named Sandy, Smith, uh, Sandy Smithson, who later was working on the Thurston County uh, you know, 
reserves, you know, reserves for law enforcement, and also had a security job at the Evergreen State College a decade later in like 1984. And Sandy Smithson also claimed to have ESP herself, which is a parallel to the interest that Donna Gomanson was uh, was talking about and was interested in pursuing. So it is rather curious to see that you know both Donna Gomanson. Uh, a, you know, victim and the sister, one of the victims, both seem to have this sort of interest in esoteric parapsychological topics, for sure. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, this is, I think it's a rarity to have so much information about any one of these victims. You know, for most of the, most of the time, there was very little uh, in the way of leads to go on, but there certainly is a lot about Donegal Manson that shows that she was in a world that has a, numerous parallels to the intelligence community. And, uh, even to mind control research that was going on at the behest of the intelligence community. And that there's a very decent chance that that sort of forms the backdrop of what's going on. And also that what was happening with these women was not just, you know, direct murders, that some of them may have survived longer, that Donnie Gomeson may have even known Ted Bundy prior to, uh, you know, prior to the murder, that she may have been involved in some of the things that he was doing, whether it was drug trafficking or, you know, uh, mind control type things or any of these other operations you know the the it's hard to directly infer any uh out scenario right but the connection to these people like richard allen miller and you know richard allen miller the sla and to bundy and suppose the dope dealing enterprise all this stuff is incredibly provocative now uh another sort of thing that's uh, very provocative is that uh is one of the later victims uh brenda ball who uh basically disappeared right after leaving a tavern in Burien, Washington, right by the Seattle Tacoma Airport. Uh, that actually corresponds with the uh, Afri- uh, an account by the aforementioned Thomas Creech, who we'll get to in a bit more detail later. And Thomas Creech basically t- would talk about how uh, he was part of this cult that uh, was part of this cult that ritually, you know, abducted and ritually murdered women in the Pacific Northwest area, including at a particular uh, location right by the SeaTac Airport in Burien, Washington. So there are also, you know, alternative, you know, alternative scenarios and, you know, suggestions. There was a type of a larger operation, you know, a different type of operation than just a lone serial killer going on. And of course, the level of, you know, sort of uh, undetectedness and apparent professionalism of these kidnappings does lend the likelihood of the possibility that this was not just one person acting alone, that this was a group of people that were trained at murder and could immediately and easily control whatever situation they were in and swiftly, you know, do away with the victim and leave no, you know, very few or no real witnesses as to what had happened. And this incidentally was a, uh, what was something that came up in Seattle Police Department files. There is an informant on, on uh, June 26, 1974, who was a drug dealer who sold hallucinogens and he claimed that he sold hallucinogens to a cult, uh, a local cult in the area that was basically that was abducting and uh, murdering, you know, hacking up these women and uh, you know, dismembering them. And so pretty much he told police, you know, I, I'm selling drugs to a cult that is uh, responsible for these murders. And police were at the time taking his information seriously or so it seemed. They, you know, they thought he was credible, wanted to investigate further. And so rather conveniently, I believe, something happened right, right a few weeks after that that completely changed the narrative, changed the tone of uh, the, the investigation. You know, up until that point, like I said, 
there were no real witnesses, witnesses who could really identify a perpetrator. Some of them saw a weird guy in an arm cast with some of these women. Other people didn't really see anything at all. But there was no real, uh, no, no, nothing you could really go off of on the investigation to pinpoint a perpetrator. It just seemed like whoever or was doing this, they got in, got out, and left almost no traces. Now, the next two victims would disappear on the, the next two victims basically uh, were abducted and murdered on the same exact day as each other. And this time, unlike the pattern set before of leaving behind no real evidence, the, the perpetrator of uh, the next two murders decided to commit them in broad daylight in front of all numerous witnesses, uh, you know, and even used their real names, supposedly. Uh, and these two women were uh, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin. So it was on July 14th, 1974 at Lake Sammamish Park. And uh, even more curious, it happened to be on the day that the Seattle Police Department was having their annual picnic. So any real self-respecting uh, serial killer would probably think, yeah, I'm like, this is about the worst opportunity possible to commit one murder, let alone two murders in one day. But this person, whoever it is, decided to uh, go for it. So they, you know, kidnapped, uh, kidnapped Janice Ott, who was the, uh, Janice Ott was actually the daughter of a, a, of a state parole board you know, a Washington State Parole Board officer. So that came from a law enforcement family. And, uh, you know, she, she pretty much vanished without a trace. There was no real, uh, no real witness statements. She just, you know, vanished and would later turn up, uh, her remains would later turn up, uh, you know, dismembered. And then a couple hours later, another, uh, another woman, Denise Nasland, ended up uh, being abducted too. And at this point, there are more witnesses to what happened. Several witnesses did see her. Uh, uh, there was what's interesting is that there were uh, some there were some witnesses who actually saw a uh, a girl who looked like her, pretty much being uh, taken by a biker gang, and there were biker gangs in the area at the same time as these uh, law enforcement officers who were having their picnic, they seemed rather buddy-buddy uh, with each other. But you know, ultimately there were some witnesses who, although they didn't see the abduction itself, did seem to did see uh, one of the women, Janice Ott, being in the company of this uh, strange individual, uh, you know, this man with blonde hair and going by the name of Ted. And there were, I think, eight witnesses total who saw who you know, saw this person who went by the name Ted. And so Ted became the prime suspect of what had happened, whoever Ted was. You know, that's all they had to go on at the time, a name and a description. And uh, strangely enough, you know, the description, you know, the, the sketch that was generated based on the description, almost nobody would, none of the witness, very few of the witnesses would actually say that it was Ted Bundy. You know, the witnesses who they considered most credible actually you know, did not believe that it was Ted Bundy. But nevertheless, this person going by the name of Ted, you know, openly in broad daylight, uh, decided to gr apparently grab two, grab and murder two women and also give his actual name to people who were around who were around them. And given the convenient timing with respect to the, uh, the cult being under investigation a couple weeks before, it almost seems to me, and again, it's hard to prove directly, but it seems very plausible that you know, with the cult potentially about to be under scrutiny, that there was a sudden and sort of desperate shift to 
make it basically make it look like you know this was just a lone killer by having this person act a lot more brazenly in a way that was designed to have them get seen by witnesses and basically create this idea that this one lone nut marauder Ted was the person responsible. And at that point, the uh, disappearances and murders in the Pacific Northwest that were attributed to Bundy stopped. There were other murders after that, but the ones attributed to Bundy stopped. And uh, the cult investigation mostly seemed to have unfortunately stopped as well at that point. You know, Bundy had his name get turned in by a number of people who, uh, you know, family members and a friend, even Ann Rule, uh, ended up turning in uh, Bundy's name at one point as a potential suspect. So yeah, you know, the investigation pretty much at that point believed very clearly that they were on the trail of one single serial killer named Ted, and that was who they had to direct their efforts to. Yeah, and I mean, it seems especially inexplicable considering how cautious uh, he had been at the beginning of the killing spree. Uh, the fact that, you know, as you were alluding to, this is around the time that he was rising in the Republican Party. I mean, he had a lot of uh, a lot of things going for him, you know. Um, yeah, it just uh, seems kind of like a baffling shift in behavior. Uh, but let's get into uh, Ted's uh, time in Utah and the surrounding area. But uh, first off, let's talk about his curious and little remarked upon relationship with Mormonism. Oh, yeah. Well, before that, I just wanted to uh, go into the cult a little bit more. They're... Okay, okay. Go for it. Go for it, bro. Yeah, sure. You know, the, the thing about the cult, you know, is that it's easy to say just in isolation you know, that these statements given to the Seattle Police Department about the cult uh, you know, are just, you know, one crank who could be dismissed, even though the police department did consider them credible, and that's written down in the documents, that maybe it was just some random guy whose story didn't pan out, but there's actually a couple more compelling indications that there really was a cult that was uh, connected to all of this, and the first thing actually came out in Anne Rule's own book, you know, if you read these mainstream accounts, you get glimpses of the truth sort of leaking through. They'll never assemble the picture fully for you, but they'll give you little tidbits that they couldn't totally suppress. And Anne Rule actually talks about how she was contacted by this uh, informant who's telling her that they had recognized a pattern between the moon phase, the phase of the moon and these uh, murders of young women that were going on. And basically said that there was some it was pretty much, this pretty much would imply that there was some kind of ritualistic significance to the dates that murder were happening, and therefore indicate that the people, or, you know, that the, the person or people behind the murders was operating according to some sort of ritualistic uh, idea. And this would have been easy to dismiss, and Anne Rule did in fact dismiss it, she was inclined to dismiss it, but what makes it really fascinating, hard to dismiss, is that this person actually predicted the date when the very next murders would happen. You know, this was after all of this was after all of the murders except for the, the murders of Janice Ott and Denise Nassim. And uh, this person basically said, you know, okay, I'm gonna give you a note. Don't open it until uh, you know until you know between July 13th and 15th. And sure enough, in that exact period that they predicted, uh, mur these murders happened. So the, this sort of uh, this allegation, you know, this pattern that was identified by this person wasn't just, you know, fit to the past because anyone can come up with a pattern to explain the past. It actually successfully predicted the future, the next set of murders that happened. So right away, there appears to be some kind of ritualistic undertone very strongly, but Amuel never really uh, addresses this any further in her book. And there is, of course, the account that I mentioned of this, uh, this informant selling hallucinogens to the cult. It was actually about a year later, another another sort of informant statement 
to the same effect. And it's unclear based on reading the documents, whether it was the same person or talking to a different officer or whether it was uh, a different individual filling a similar role. But it did, it did come up again, at least once in the police files. And then the, there's also something that the Seattle Police Department was uh, keeping the sort of dossier known as file 1004, which was their accumulation of occult related activity in the area. And uh, among other things that were accumulating in file 1004, you know, there was, for example, they had information on, you know, well, they had information on Stanley Baker, this uh, Montana serial killer who uh, some people probably recognize if they read uh, Maury Terry's Ultimate Evil or Ed Sanders' book, Family. He was allegedly one of these killers for the, uh, the Chingon group of the process, split off group of the process. But he had like a what a human finger or something on him when he was apprehended, right? Yeah, you know, he basically uh, was like, I have a problem, I'm a cannibal, and then he pulled out yeah. a human finger bone. It's one of the most I feel bad for laughing almost, but it's like one of the most you know brazen things that you could ever say in that situation. Yeah, you know, Stanley Baker, he was uh, he was you know, allegedly he claimed he was working on behalf of the Grand Shingon's cult leader, which was the same title that Charles Manson would also use. Uh, you know, that Charles Manson's followers would use to refer to him. So, you know, the, they had all sorts of, you know, information on satanic activity in the area, which is very, uh, you know, very curious. But ultimately, there were people who were reporting stuff to file 1004 saying that they saw someone who looked like Ted, you know, this person seen at the lake that day, who was leading cult meetings in the woods. And of course, it's unclear whether this Ted who was seen that day was actually Ted Bundy, because very few witnesses could actually make the identification. But nevertheless, the fact that this person who was seen committing these crimes, the murders of uh, Janice Ott and Denise Naslin, being identified as a potential cult leader in the area is pretty curious, no doubt. And then there are actually more than one, there are two different serial killers uh, at different times who have pretty much made statements saying, you know, talking about this uh, cult connection in a way that lines up very uh, strongly with Ted Bundy's own, uh, you know, the murder attributed to Ted Bundy and those experiences. The first is a man by the name of Thomas Creech. And Thomas Creech, uh, he was arrested in, Ida in Idaho in, I believe, November 1974 for a double murder. And then he basically would make, spill out all these confessions saying that he was a uh, killer, a contract killer for a nationwide uh, organization, that he was, you know, murdering for hire, on behalf of organized crime interests, including a Nevada casino owner uh, named Peter Simon and, uh, and a couple other handlers as well. He talked about his uh, being involved, associated with the heroin trafficking business on behalf of, uh, and even implicated some local politicians, well, some nationally prominent politicians in this, such as uh, Colorado Governor John Love and uh, Ohio Governor John Gilligan and Colorado Senator Gary Hart, uh, he actually uh, he actually was arrested. When he was arrested, he was on his way to Denver, and there was an informant who said that Thomas Creech was coming to murder Gary Hart. And then this was later brushed aside. It, you know, Thomas Creech said this too that he was coming to murder Gary Hart, and then later they just the authorities dismissed this. But an, an informant had independently said the same exact thing, so it's rather hard to know why they th thought that this was a made-up story if it was being confirmed independently outside of Creech, but nevertheless it was dismissed. And anyway, Creech, you know, he also said that he was part of this uh, satanic 
organization, the satanic organization, that the people who he was with would, you know, part of the murder for hire operation was committing these ritualistic murders. Uh, and these ritualistic murders specifically took place at a, uh, this house, this property in Burien, Washington, right by, you know, SeaTac, which of course is right where Brenda Ball disappeared from. And, uh, you know, so the correspondence there between one of Bundy's uh, attributed victims and the activities that Thomas Creech was up to, and the fact that Thomas Creech openly talked about how they were abducting young women from the Pacific Northwest to use in these rituals, and that, of course, matches up too with the statements in the Seattle police files. All of that lends a certain amount of credibility to Creech's claims, and in fact, he shows up in one of these news articles about File 1004, and it acknowledges that he described real individuals, you know, people who actually existed. He, the place he described in King County, Washington, uh, likely the house in Burien that he was talking about actually did exist. And human blood was even found in one of these rooms. Now, the homicide, the head of the homicide department in C Seattle, uh, Irv Swindler, basically said, well, yeah, but this room wouldn't be big enough for a satanic ritual to happen, which I am not totally sure what that actually means. And it doesn't discredit that this house was used for it because they could have, of course, dumped the victim's bodies in a different room from where the initial murder happened. So, you know, it's a rather strange statement to dismiss it. And the Herb Swindler was himself a longtime friend of Ann Rule and, uh, you know, was the head of the homicide department. And was, uh, I believe he was actually appointed to head the homicide department on the very day that Jordan Hawkins, one of the Pacific Northwest victims attributed to Bundy, disappeared. So, you know, there's some interesting timing there too. But yeah, Thomas Creech's statements very strongly line up with the uh, occult allegations to the Seattle Police Department and also to what happened to Brenda Ball in terms of the being in the same area. And uh, Creech also said that another aspect of the cult slash murder for hire organization that he was part of was biker gangs. And of course, that calls to mind both the biker gangs that Donico Manson was said to be connected to and the alleged and the biker gang that may have been involved in abducting Denise Nasland on July 14th. And then finally, uh, of course, also, I mean, for you know, those of us who have followed this kind of material too, I mean, there have been a lot of implications with biker gangs uh, and a lot of the you know, theories put forth by Maury Terry and uh, some of these other individuals. I mean, concerning Manson and the Son of Sam killings, uh, certainly Manson did cultivate ties with biker gangs. Um, there were indications that it was a similar thing with the Son of Sam uh, cult in New York. So yeah, uh, you definitely see this uh, this reoccurring thread of biker gangs and a lot of this uh, type of stuff as well. Right, uh, and uh, some of the biker gangs that Creech mentioned, I believe, you know, like the Gypsy Jokers, I think he mentioned them and they were also mentioned in connection with Charles Manson. So, and uh, Creech himself, some of the satanic activities he talked about, law enforcement officers were interested in them because they appeared to be uh, connected to the Manson case. You know, one of the, art the best article in Thomas Creech's whole ordeal as an article for We Magazine, it's called OUI, yeah, from 1977 by Michael Reynolds, is on my website, CavDef, on the Thomas Creech page, and it talks about how, you know, Creech talked about this, uh, this activity in Southern California that, and even though the police couldn't find much definitive evidence on it at the time, they were keeping their file open because it was believed to have links to the Manson case, and then, of course, like I said before, Creech also claimed to have delivered uh, deliver this uh, drug to the SLA at the behest of his handler, Peter Simon. Uh, so yeah, you know, Creech shows up in a 
Preach has parallels with a lot of the stuff we, you see so far in the Ted Bundy case and the, uh, to a lot of the things that I've talked about regarding the victims. And then finally, a convicted murderer uh, named Stanley Burson. He was convicted of, he was convicted of uh, one murder in the Pacific Northwest. He was charged with another, both of young women. However, he was suspected of, as, you know, like 30 murders. He was a suspected serial killer on the same caliber as what Ted Bundy is often represented as. And according, his, his attorney even said at one point that Stanley Bernson would make Ted Bundy look like a choir boy. And also that, uh, that Stanley Bernson and Ted Bundy traveled together at one point and actually, you know, they were, they were associated with each other and maybe even killed victims together. And you know, Stanley Bernson openly talked about that, which is rather interesting. Yet again, like with the Steve Brown story in the Donegal Manson documents, you have a very uncommon mention of Ted Bundy having an accomplice, which you very rarely ever hear about. And uh, Stanley Bernstein also appears to have been a devil worshiper. He was involved in this plot uh, while he was in prison, an escape plot, uh, was communicating with a number of other people. Uh, that, you know, basically, he was talking about this, this quote-unquote brotherhood bound by a covenant uh, of people who would be helping him escape. Uh, these encoded symbols in these letters that appeared to indicate satanic worship and even uh, and the plan itself was that you know would involve uh, getting a bunch of automatic weapons and using a helicopter it had a, involved a pretty sizable arsenal to pull off and that once again sort of harkens back to stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes about the uh, the White Eagle Underground and the level of uh, weapons arsenals that they supposedly have themselves so you see once again a, a parallel to the to the same ground that we've tread on many times before but yeah all these accounts you know although none of them have individually proved a lot on their own i think it's uncanny how many of them surface in this one case and all point to the same sort of thing of these murders and a ted bundy being connected to something much bigger and something that often has satanic and occult undertones to it yeah absolutely um and then also kind of the uncanny uh, military presence and a lot of this type of stuff as well. Um, but yes, uh, anyway, let's get to the Mormons, though. That's another uh, another institution that uh, shows up a lot in this kind of stuff that doesn't get recognized a lot. Yeah. Yeah. As I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Bundy's you know, fiance for quite a while was this uh, woman, Liz Klopfer, who he had met in Seattle but she came from Ogden, Utah, from a prominent family there. And like I said, her father, uh, Dr. Russell Hurst, was a member of the LDS Church. His uh, son, if I recall correctly, his son, Russell Hurst Jr., who was that a Vietnam surgeon that I mentioned, I believe got married in the LDS Church. So yeah, you know, Bundy got involved with this Mormon family from uh, very early on in the early 70s. And then Later, when Bundy ended up moving to Utah for his, to pursue law school there at the University of Utah, he did for a brief period convert to Mormonism. You know, it's unclear exactly when it happened because a lot of accounts that you read will say that it only happened in late, I mean, you know, mid to late 1975, like right after his arrest, his first arrest. But there's also an account from a, uh, from a woman by the name of Ann Swenson who says that she met Bundy in February of 1975 at a Mormon church. So again, you know, as with many things in this case, you, know, you sometimes you hear uh, 
a, a certain amount of minimization about the extent to which Bundy was actually involved in some sort of activity, be it foreign language study or Mormonism, and then it appears that it actually may have gone on much longer than most accounts tell you. Now, so Bundy wasn't, but no doubt, Bundy was involved in the Mormon church for at least, you know, at least uh, several months after his conversion, but given his uh, alleged connection to Anne Swenson, and of course his association with the, uh, the family of, of Liz Klopfer, may have been involved in it for years, actually. And uh, in some of these cases we'll get to as well, there are al there's an al alternative suspect who himself has some weird connections to the uh, Mormon church. But yeah, this sort of thing does lurk in the background of the specter. It seems that when you enter into uh, Utah and start dealing with prominent people in Utah, you are very likely to run into members of the LDS or splinter groups at a certain point. And certainly when you get into some of the um, <clears throat> the more fringe sects, I mean, the uh, fundamentalist Mormon groups, I mean, you see, you know, again, a lot of uh, kind of uncanny parallels to some of the networks we've been discussing. I mean, of course, you've got the LeBaron family um, in Mexico who were implicated in a lot of criminal activity over the years. Um, I believe one of the schemes was a, uh, oh gosh, they were stealing cars. I can't remember. I think it was in Mexico and then they were funneling acro them across the border and reselling them. Um, which also could have been a very convenient way uh, to traffic drugs as well. And um, of course, there was the uh, infamous uh, Ezreal LeBaron, I believe his name was the uh, so-called Mormon Manson, uh, who also was in, uh, implicated in quite a few murders, I believe something like 25 or something like that. And there were indications that some of this was sort of uh, crime-related, possibly contract killings. And um, the LeBarons, you know, up to this day, uh, they would have connections, the uh, branch in Mexico, that is to say, I would have connections with the Nexium cult in recent years. Right. So, there's a lot of uh, very strange stuff about all of that. Now, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you uh, noticed some similarities with some of the dates uh, involving some of Israel LeBaron's crimes, right? And some of the stuff with Bundy? Yeah, that, that'll come up in a bit when we get to the, uh, okay, the okay. launch uh, abduction. But also, since you mentioned the whole business of you know ferrying car those cars across the border i have to point out that that is a uh, parallel to the kind of operation that thomas creech himself talked about that his first connection to the uh to this cult group was actually being a uh, ferrying heroin in uh in cars for an auto transport business and then uh henry lee lucas has also talked about how he had the initial job that he was given by the cult by the hand of the cult recruiter was to uh, basically transport stolen cars across, you know, across the Mexican border and across the country, packed with all sorts of potential contraband inside of it. So that is a common thread that seems to come up in connection with these uh, organized crime groups. And so it is interesting to see both these satanic cults and uh, off and also LDS offshoots down in Mexico both being involved in similar activity there. It's not even actually just the offshoots of the LDS. Uh, no, um, and speaking to one of my friends who had a lot of involvement with the LDS over the years, um, it was actually fairly common for young uh, Mormon men to be recruited by the church to transport cars cross country because, um, you know, I mean, Mormons are very clean cut and very trustworthy and so forth. So they, um, you know, the church actually kind of found a nice little niche uh, to make some money off of that uh, presentation and the uh, car transportation thing. So, yeah, uh, even again with that, it does raise the possibility, especially given that, um, 
you know, you had these fundamentalist sects who uh, typically had much closer connections to the mainline church than anybody wants to admit uh, doing a lot of this nefarious activity. It does um, raise some interesting possibilities. And I mean, you know, to kind of put this into some perspective, you know, you can kind of look at uh, the mainline Mormon uh, LDS <clears throat> is a keen to like the process church of final right. judgment. And then you could kind of see uh, the fundamentalist Mormon sex as something like the 4P movement, you know, the one of the alleged uh, violent offshoots of the process church or something to that kind of uh, effect. You know, I mean, theoretically, there was a separation and what have you. But, you know, I mean, they yeah, they kind of they found uses uses for one another sometimes. And, uh, you know, it gave. Uh, it, it was in a good way for the uh, mainline institution to keep its hands clean and just blame every, uh, you know, kind of nefarious deed on fanatics. So, right. The, you know, the common trend and you see that with a lot of these uh, satanically oriented churches as well. And, you know, the church of Satan, the process, the temple of set, all these things are outwardly legitimate organizations. And of course, you know, but, you know, and these cult or these cults may not be officially linked to them, but by seeding the ideology into the main, into the, you know, zeitgeist, you basically have created, given the tools to these people to form these organizations, given them the sort of social binding glue to uh, create, to create these networks and engage in this activity. And I think you draw a very excellent parallel just as with the, uh, these organ mainstream organizations, uh, satanic organizations and the cults, you see the LDS and these splinter groups that are not quite as distant from them as they would like to present themselves. Oh, absolutely. And I'll also kind of point out too, right quick, um, the Best Friends uh, Animal Society, the uh, successor to the Process Church of Final Judgment, ended up relocating uh, to Utah, yep. uh, which is where it still is to this day. And it was only about 30 or 40 miles from Colorado City, uh, you know, so about a, maybe an hour drive, which was right across the state in Arizona. And that was a town that's uh, until I think just recently was totally under the control of uh, one particular <laughs> fundamental Mormon sect that was uh, overseen by the infamous Warren Jeffs uh, reportedly had a series of ranches across the southwest where um, he and some of his other uh, top lieutenants would uh, indulge with um, underage women and so forth, uh, you know, their child brides and that type of thing. So, yeah, you know, um, and, you know, this was all pretty open. I mean, pretty much the entire town was owned by this, uh, you know, offshoot, this fundamentalist Mormon sect. Uh, I mean, the police, everything was controlled by it. Uh, it was almost run, you know, like an Orwellian authoritarian fashion. So, um, yeah, I mean, this, you know, they really weren't even attempting to hide this kind of stuff just to sort of, give you know, listeners some indication of how open some of this stuff has been. But yeah, I mean, it is, you know, kind of interesting how you do have these, uh, these offshoots that are engaged in these kinds of activities that can be easily blamed and uh, keep the mainline institutions clean. Right. All right. So uh, let's get into how good old Ted ended up in Utah. Yeah, like I said, he, uh, he transferred to the University of Utah for Law, continuing his law school career, although of course his actual amount of focus on law school is very, it was very minimal then and, you know, never really, never really was a serious thing. Anyway, so he, he relocates there in uh, right after the July murders and uh, goes there in August. And then not too long after that, another series of murders pick up. And once again, these are also attributed to Bundy, although with, uh, None of the murders that occur in Utah, or he—he's never charged with any murders that occur in Utah either. But they are all 
laid at his feet. Ultimately, he confesses allegedly to many of them on, the, on death row. And ultimately, the cases are for the most part closed in that manner. And uh, what you see even more strongly in Utah than you would see than you saw in the Pacific Northwest was an indication that there were quite possibly deeper motives behind some of these murders. You know, just as David Berkowitz alluded to with the Son of Sam Colt, and just as Henry Lucas alluded to with the Hand of Death, you see an indication that there may be some sort of you know random senseless murders that were committed just because these people are sick and you know enjoy violence and the you know and the power feeling of power that comes with it mixed in with some murders that were actually done for targeted reasons. And you see that certain, a number of these Utah victims attributed to Bundy were quite possibly killed for specific reasons. Uh, one of them being Melissa Smith of Midvale, Utah, who was actually the daughter of the, uh, of the police chief. Uh, I believe his name was uh, Richard. Uh, I believe his name was, uh, sorry, Lewis Smith. And yeah, she, so she was the daughter of the police chief. And that, of course, has to raise some question in people's minds about you know, when the family member of such a prominent local individual is targeted, you know, it, there's, a, there's at least a decent chance that, you know, someone like the police chief is bound to collect a lot of enemies. And so, of course, one has to raise the question of if he was involved in anything, you know, investigations or what have you that may have made him a target. You know, again, something that is hard to prove, but also has to be highlighted as a possibility in these sorts of cases. Melissa Smith was the daughter of the, of the police chief, and she, one of the weird things about her case is that she vanished on, uh, I mean, she vanished on October 18th, and uh, the day after that, Ted Bundy actually left to go on a hunting trip with his, uh, his fiance's father, Dr. Russell Hurst, and, uh, and what's strange about that is that Melissa Smith according to the autopsy reports, was actually alive for multiple, she was kept alive multiple days. So that raises the obvious question of how she could have been held captive if her captor left the, left the area and no one was keeping watch over her. It almost by, you know, almost inherently indicates that there was more than one person involved in her disappearance and that while Bundy left, there was another person ensuring that she didn't leave. So, you know, that, that the case not only suggests a possible contract motive, but also suggests that if Bundy was part of this, that he did not act alone by any stretch. And uh, a victim who came, uh, the next Utah victim attributed to Bundy, Laura, Laura Amy, uh, also, and you know, there was a sim the similar sort of thing in that she was, you know, in that she was uh, very clearly, uh, you know, held captive for much longer than, you know, just today. She wasn't killed immediately. Uh, her, she disappeared on October 31st, uh, you know, Halloween, which is, of course, a, an occult holiday for certain groups. And uh, she was actually suspected by law enforcement of being on her way to buy drugs at a cafe in American Fork, Utah. And this is a cafe that Bundy happened to frequent, sometimes under a fake name. Uh, and it also appears that Laura Amy had some uh, sort of precognition, uh, realized that she, her life may have been in danger because a few weeks before her disappearance, she actually told her mother, you know, I don't want to be buried in, like when I die, I don't want to be buried in a dress. And her mother was stunned, because, you know, that her, that her daughter would be talking about her funeral when she was so young and had her whole life ahead of her. And, uh, but 
unfortunately, she ultimately did, you know, turn up dead only weeks after that. And, uh, you know, her, her request was honored, of course, but how, what, the fact that she talked about that so soon before her death raised the possibility that she may have known, you know, that she was, in fact, you know, a target and that she was supposedly linked to drug distribution in some way also, you know, raises the potential motive of why she may have been targeted if that is indeed the case. And uh, some weird things about what, about her, uh, her murder is that her, her body was found on November 22nd, you know, so weeks after her disappearance. And, uh, but the autopsy indicated that she, that she died only about a week before she was found. So that means that there are two weeks, uh, she was held captive for two weeks. And of course, Bundy had his own life and everything in the interim, at least to some extent. So it's again, raised the question of how, and someone could have, how she could have been held in captivity for so long if Bundy was the only person involved. And so once again, you have signs pointing to multiple perpetrators. And uh, what happened about a week, what happened about a week after that uh, on November 8th, 1974, is I have to say the clearest indication that the murders in Utah attributed to Ted Bundy were uh, clearly the work of multiple people. This this case or set of cases really just officially cinches it, and it is the cases of uh, the kidnapping of Carol Durant and the uh, the murder of Deborah Kent, both on the same day and uh, within a very short time frame of each other. So basically, uh, around uh, and th these times that I'm about to say are recorded in police documents. So it's pretty uh, solidly confirmed as to what it, when these things happened. Uh, basically this, uh, this young woman, Carol Durant in Murray City, Utah, arrived at a local mall uh, uh, basically at 7 p.m. And by her account, she spent you know, 10 to 15 minutes in the mall, you know, shopping, doing various things. And then at that point, she ended up meeting uh, her abductor who was going by the name of all, basically gave his name as Officer Roslin. And uh, he basically, you know, gave her the sort of ruse of how, you know, oh, your car's been broken into, you know, you need to come with me. And, uh, you know, she, you know, she followed him and everything. And then uh, he ultimately, you know, forced her into his, forced her into his car, uh, you know, tried to, uh, and then, you know, drove away and tried to, uh, try to handcuff her. And you got, I believe, one handcuff on her and was trying to get the other one, but, she was fighting and refused, and then she finally was able to break free from him and flee. Uh, and so right after that, she flagged down these local bystanders and then went to the police department to make a statement. Now, by her account, she spent a total of about 20 to 30 minutes with her captor. So putting these times together, you know, it would appear that her escape would have happened no earlier than you know, 7.30 p.m. She spent, you know, on the on the low end, 10 minutes inside before meeting her captor, and then 20 minutes with him after, you know, it's about, and she arrived at the mall at 7 p.m., it's about 7.30 when she escaped. If you go by the high end of her estimates, she actually would have escaped later around 7.45 p.m., and uh, given the time at which the police ultimately did take a report, which was 8.30 p.m., it does appear more likely that her escape was at the, uh, closer to 7.45 than it was to 7.30 just, you know, because of how long, how long it might have reasonably taken. But in, a, in any case, between 7.30 and 7.45, can pretty much pin down is when Carol Durant managed to escape her captor, whoever it was. Now, right around the same time, uh, 
uh, I think it's about 20 miles away in Bountiful, Utah, uh, at the uh, local, at the Viewmont High School there. There's a play going on, you know, drama club is doing, and the drama teacher, Raylan Shepard, reports seeing a strange man uh, several times during that night, but the first time she sees him is at 7.45 p.m. And uh, this man would later be identified as Ted Bundy, although there are serious doubts and even a different identification of this man that happened earlier. But in any event, she reports seeing this man at 7.45 p.m. that night. Uh, now, Carol Durant escaped at no earlier than 7.30 and possibly even escaped at, you know, as late as 7.45 p.m. So if, if one is to postulate that Ted Bundy was both of these people, was both Carol Durant's abductor and the mysterious man who was seen at Viewmont High School, as the authorities would later do, uh, you basically end up with an impossible scenario. You know, either Bundy has to travel 15 minutes, uh, travel 20 miles in 15 minutes, uh, you know, in the in the middle of a rainstorm, has to radically change the appearance in certain ways. You know, just because there's a, I believe a Carol Durant's account talks about him having alcohol in his breath. The other, the later account of Viewmont High School does not talk about that. His hair appeared different. You know, so he would have to drive very fast probably above the speed limit in the middle of a rainstorm, radically change the appearance, you know, and also would have had to, before that point, formulate a new plan, you know, as soon as Carol Durant got away, immediately make the decision to drive all the way out to Viewmont High School and abduct a new victim, would have had to do all of that in such an implausibly short amount of time, or if the higher end estimate is uh, of when Carol Durant escaped is true, it would have been literally impossible because Ted Bundy or, or whoever the abductor was would have been in uh, Murray, Utah, while this person is talking to Raylan Shepard, you know, no matter how you slice it, it ranges from extremely improbable to literally impossible that any one person, be it Ted Bundy or anybody else, could have committed both of these crimes. And yet, in all official tellings, there is absolutely no scrutiny, no skepticism. It's accepted as absolute fact that Ted Bundy abducted Carol Durant and murdered Deborah Kent, when there's practically no way it could be true. Yeah, I can confirm this first from firsthand experience. It's it's much pl closer to uh, impossible than improbable. Um, I uh, was recently in Salt Lake City. For those of you who uh, checked my blog, I did a post about that about a month ago. And uh, yeah, uh, I was literally driven from the spot uh, where the second girl was abducted to the spot where the first attempted redemption had occurred. And it took my companion and I, I believe, about 25 to 30 minutes to get there. And this is uh, using the interstate driving at uh, over 65 miles an hour. Of course, um, <clears throat> in that era, you would have had double nickels uh, on the interstate, not 65. So Bundy would have had to have been driving really 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 fast i mean at least 30 or so miles above the posted speed limit in to have any possibility of making it to this spot so would he have been doing that after he had just failed to abduct a woman right. uh, in the middle of a rainstorm it, it's it's total bullshit i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. but this is just Having seen it for myself, it is ridiculous. Yeah, I'm with you. And of course, yeah, as we probably get to as well, what makes the Deborah Kent case um, even more particularly, uh, you know, indicative of something else going on is that the, the person who was seen by Raylan Shepard, there was actually an initial identification of it 
as being someone other than Ted Bundy. And uh, that was a local drug dealer in Park City, Utah, by the name of Ronald Dennis Auth. This is mentioned in the investigative files on Deborah Kent's murder that, you know, Park City authorities had basically, you know, they had heard about this, they, the description of the guy, and they were like, and they basically said, you know, we have a guy who has a record, and we think he might be your guy. You know, they sent him the, sent him the photo and everything, and they, you know, they first, uh, they took their witness, Raylan Shepard, and they decided to have her try to identify Ronald and us off. They brought her to a restaurant where uh, Auth worked as a waiter. And uh, when she basically, you know, when she saw him, she pretty much immediately, you know, immediately resonated with her. You know, she was adamant that this was the guy. And it wasn't just, you know, a tentative thing. It was based on all manner of uh, attributes of this person. It was based on how he looked physically, his voice, even his, you know, mannerisms and the way he walked. She had no doubt that uh, this guy, Ronald Auth, was the person who she had seen. So Ronald Dennis Auth was brought in, interrogated, he denied it. He took a polygraph, he passed the polygraph, and that was the end of it. You know, they, they used a the polygraph and that was it. They dismissed him entirely. And uh, although it is certainly hard to uh, prove that there was some kind of protection going on there, uh, later parts of his history are somewhat indicative of that fact because a couple years later, in 1979, uh, he was caught among with a couple other co-defendants transporting what is almost was almost four hundred million dollars worth Colombian Colombian marijuana on a shrimp boat, uh, basically trying to get past Puerto Rico and bring it into the U.S. So he was no small figure. He wasn't just some kind of you know local you know no name drug dealer. He was moving massive amounts of uh, marijuana in that time. So he was a pretty uh, big deal uh, type of person in that scene, and. What's strange about it too is that he got a jail sentence uh, handed down to him by a jury. And then the judge actually stepped in and vacated his jail sentence, turned it into, uh, I think, just a probation instead, which is about the only instance I think you'll ever find where a judge tried to be more lenient on a drug crime as opposed to less lenient. So that on its own suggests that Ronald Dennis Auth, you know, the fact that the police were so quick to dismiss him. And then a later treatment in that drug case do suggest that Ronald Dennis Auth may well have lived a sort of charmed life that comes with being a relatively high-level drug dealer. Uh, and the fact that someone like him would come up as a suspect in the murder that later was attributed to, to Ted Bundy does certainly uh, raise the question yet again of whether there were organized crime-related motives being hidden by the rush to lay all on Ted Bundy. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly shades to the, you know, the whole thing with Henry Lee Lucas and, I mean, almost every kind of random unsolved murder they could think of being penned on him. Um, in the case of Auth, too, I mean, I will point out uh, Bontefeth, I believe it was, where the abduction of Ken happened. Um, it's a very affluent neighborhood. Uh, you know, there's some real money there. And as I understand it, it hasn't changed very much uh, from the 1970s, uh, from the time when I was there. So, um, yeah, you know, you could maybe surmise from that that his clientele probably, you know, had some money. Right. And uh, uh, certainly raises some possibilities about who they might have been connected to or what institutions in the Salt Lake City Yeah, and the area. Kent family itself, uh, Deborah Kent's father, Dean Kent, was an executive at a local oil company, the, the Triangle Oil Company, and a company that was incidentally later sued for 
uh, labor like labor law violations. So there are, and uh, also some of the people, I guess I should bring up the third, a couple of the, these uh, Mormon connections again. One of the, one of the, uh, well, some of the people at the Triangle Oil Company alongside Dean Kent were people with the surname of Allred. Uh, and uh, that is the same surname that you see of, uh, of a man named uh, Rulon Allred, who was part of a, he was a member of this uh, breakaway uh, sect of, you know, this Mormon fundamentalist, you know, breakaway from the LDS group. And he was murdered on, uh, uh, he was murdered on May 10th, 1977 by, uh, by, you know, contract sort of, you know, female, you know, contract killers who were working for Ervil LeBaron, who was uh, headed another LDS breakaway sect. And so it is interesting to see the all red name potentially pop up in connection with this too. And the other thing I had wanted to get to before when talking about Carol Durant was that there was actually an alternative suspect to Ted Bundy who came up in connection with the case who actually uh, fit the physical description of the, of her abductor better than Bundy. Uh, his name was uh, Douglas Allen Yoakam, spelled Y-O-A-K-A-M. He was formerly uh, convicted in this, uh, in this shooting death of, uh, basically he, he had tried to, on, I believe it was May 11th, 1977, so literally like a day after Rulon Allred's murder, interestingly enough, he went up to this woman uh, named, uh, remember her, what her name was uh was oh yeah, karen roberson yeah he tried to go up to this woman in mill creek canyon and uh basically arrest her and basically handcuff her and sexually assault her and uh this bystander this bystander then came by and uh named justin toffer and tried to stop him and he ended up shooting justin toffer and killing him and also critically wounding karen roberson and he ended up uh, going in prison. He's been there since then. He's tried to get parole, but he's never been granted parole. And he would later claim that his uh, what he did was actually all just paranoia induced by the recent murder of Rulon Allred. He claimed that he was a uh, he was a uh, well he was a weapons dealer. You know he was a licensed gun dealer. And he actually claimed that Rulon Allred had very had previously come by and tried to buy weapons from him. And then when Rulon Allred turned up murdered, he sort of had a mental break himself. So no, no indication of how true that stuff is, but it is certainly interesting that uh, both these cases that both these cases that happened on November 8th, 1974, they were later attributed to Bundy, do have some sort of weird apparent connections to uh, to these sort of these LDS, uh, seemingly you know, rival LDS uh, LDS breakaway groups in a way. And uh, one final aspect of that is that this unknown person, uh, this unknown person who was seen at Vimont High School, whoever it was, be it Ronald Denisoff or anybody else, at one point they were, they were talking to Raylan Shepard and they asked her a question, like, do you know if Brent Olson is here? And she had no idea who that was. Uh, but there, one possible name I came across for Brent Olson was incidentally a, uh, a member of an LDS. He, you know, he was an LDS member he went on an LDS mission at one point. He was, and he was also from Ogden, just like Ted Bundy's uh, fiance's family was. So, rather, uh, uh, rather interesting that you know you see these Mormon connections pop up again and again. Uh, you know, with with these two particular Utah cases, especially. 
we kind of see shades of this network um, later on with Israeli keys uh, as well. Of course, um, his family had, I believe, what started out in the fundamentalist Mormon sect. They then uh, went into Christian identity theology. And by the time he became a serial killer, quote unquote, he was a full blown Satanist. Um, chain of progression is far more natural than a lot of people realize. Quite yeah. Frankly. And of course, Israel Keys, he was also, you know, out in uh, none, other than, none other than Washington State for much of the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, mm -hmm. it seems that this uh, area of the country is a gathering ground almost. It, the entire Western U.S. really seems to be afflicted with this sort of activity. And uh, on that note, too, I wanted to uh, say a few things here about the Salt Lake City area before we move along. But, um, you know, you have to kind of understand that uh, it's, it's really uh, essential, uh, well, for a lot of national security reasons, but I think especially for some of the continuity of government type of stuff. Um, I can't remember if you got into it yet, George, but uh, Ted Bundy obviously went to the U of U, the uh, University of Utah at the law school there. Uh, but this college, like uh, the one at Washington State, was also an early recipient of uh, the ARPANET uh, technology. And uh, to get into what I was uh, saying earlier about this uh, project uh, based around behavioral science, it was launched by the legendary J.C.R. Licklider, who was a major figure in all the ARPANET stuff. Um, this is from Surveillance uh, Valley. As head of the ARPANET's command and control research project and behavioral science program, Lick, as uh, Licklider was known as in the agency, had seen how the agency struggled with the mountains of data generated by its counterinsurgency initiatives in Southeast Asia. A major goal of his work during his brief stint at ARPA was to jumpstart a program that would ultimately build the underlying system that could make computerized or computer-aided counterinsurgency and command and control more efficient. Tools that ingest and analyze data, create searchable databases, build predictive models, and allow people to share that information across vast distances. So this is something that the ARPANET was seen for aiding counterinsurgency operations. And you just so happen to have a hub there in the U of U. Now, another interesting thing I will point out about this ARPANET program is it was named the Cambridge Project. Huh, very uh -huh. funny. And uh, yes, it was also based on an earlier program that had been used in Vietnam called Project Camelot. <laughs> Very funny, too, if you're aware of the uh, connotations that has to the uh, Project Camelot in ufology. And of course, uh, Camelot House, as I mentioned before, <laughs> being that up. Yeah, Camelot shows up a lot in this kind of stuff. It does, George. Uh, but something else, too, I need to make a point about. There is an army base in Draper, Utah, which is very close to SLC, and it houses a peculiar unit. It is a National Guard unit known as the 19th Special Forces Group. It is uh, one of only two National Guard units that are part of the Army Special Forces, more commonly referred to as the Green Berets. The other is the 20th, which is based, uh, I believe, out of Alabama, but has detachments all across the country as the 19th does. However, the headquarters the 19th is in Draper, Utah. <clears throat> now this is significant because the 19th Special Forces Group along with the 20th would in theory be uh, the group responsible for waging a uh, guerrilla war against an invading force or restoring order to the country in the event of the uh, government being incapacitated from a nuclear exchange or something to that effect. So <laughs> Essentially, it would be akin to what, say, the uh, official or the uh, regular army special forces would have done in Europe as part of the Gladio operations. Essentially, yeah. it would do the same thing here. And it is based right there in Utah, 
in the Salt Lake City area where Ted Bundy ended up uh, while he was attending a university that happened to house a node of the ARPANET, which was, among other things, a major component of a developing counterinsurgency technique that was being developed by the United States military. So, yeah, that's, you know, certainly just a coincidence, I would assume. I'm sure. All right, George. Well, uh, on that note, let us turn to the wonderful state of Colorado. Tell us a bit about good old Bundy's crimes there and some of the other strange activities unfolding at Grand Junction. Yeah, and just say, you know, as you progress, seems that, you know, as this crime progressed, it gets more and more obvious that there are connections to these uh, deeper, you know, syndicates involved in activities like drug trafficking and other, you know, sex trafficking and other nefarious underworld operations there. In 1975, Bundy, you know, more or less sort of moved, shifted focus of many of his crimes from Utah, where he was still living, to uh, to Colorado. At least that's how the story goes. And the very first victim that was attributed to Ted Bundy in Colorado was a woman named Karen Campbell. Uh, first name spelled C-A-R-Y-N. Uh, she was a nurse from Dearborn, Michigan. Uh, you know her. She had, she had a brother who was a, a police officer in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, may or may not be significant, but anyway, she and her husband, so she was a nurse and her husband, Dr. Ringley Godowski, was a doctor, and he had been invited to this cardiology conference uh, in Aspen, and so they were staying at the, uh, the, snow, the Snowmass Inn Resort, which is like right, uh, or sorry, the Wildwood Inn resort in Snowmass, which is right by Aspen, Colorado, where this uh, whole convention was taking place. And they also were, of course, just using it to vacation time. Now, uh, anyway, she had run into, uh, Karen had run into one of her old boyfriends, and, you know, they were sort of joking around. And uh, she, at one point, you know, the topic of like a Playboy you know, magazine came up. And so she went back to her room to get a mag that magazine, and she just completely vanished on her way back to that room and uh, later would turn up uh, having been you know, having been brutally beaten, you know, left in the snowy countryside. Uh, like I think a month later, her body would finally turn up. And uh, so, you know, the police went through all the standard uh, suspects they could. Of course, you first focus on the her husband and the former boyfriend of hers who had been there and they were initially interrogated then cleared. After that, the focus uh, landed on a somewhat strange individual named uh, named Hugh Joseph Michael Tamos, uh, last name T-E-M-O-S. And uh, Hugh, Hugh Tamos was a, he was a day laborer. Uh, you know, he would basically would do these sort of low-skilled menial jobs for various, uh, various hotels in the Aspen area, you know, dishwasher, you know, and, and uh, stuff like that. So he was known in many of these hotels as having a number of uh, mental imbalances you know he was described as being he was very violent especially towards women would often you know make inappropriate sexual advances towards them just in general seemed to have some uh, screws loose mentally some people described him as quote not playing with a full deck and or just called him outright crazy so he was certainly a certainly a, a an odd individual who may have had the capacity for this type of violent crime, you know, violent crime against, you know, against this young woman there. And although he never, though he never actually uh, worked, he never actually worked at the Wildwood Inn 
but there was a witness on January 12th that day who reported seeing him at the Wildwood Inn. This is talked about in a uh, local news report by uh, a Seattle reporter named Ruth Walsh, who back in 1979 did a story uh, essentially casting doubt on on whether Ted Bundy really was the perpetrator of these murders. This has been uploaded on uh, on the program to kill a satanic cover-up YouTube channel that some people are likely familiar with. And if you're not, I highly recommend it. It's also linked on CavDef, my Ted Bundy page as well. And yeah, if you watch it, you see that you know there was a witness account placing this guy, Hugh Joseph Michael Tamos, who was called Jones in the news report and it was called Manny Treff in one of the books on the Ted Bundy case, basically placing him at the Wildwood Inn at the pool, even though he uh, had no real business being at the Wildwood Inn. And uh, he incidentally was not working at any of these places, at any of the places he usually worked on the 12th. And then he, you know, he went back to work on the 13th. And then right after that, he collected his last paycheck and then he packed it up and he pretty much hightailed it out of the area. So it is, uh, was certainly strange timing as well for him to leave right after the disappearance of this woman who happened to disappear from a, from a hotel that he was at, even though he had no business being there. He would later turn up in Roseburg, Utah, or sorry, Roseburg, Oregon, being arrested on some charge, on some kind of you know, petty charge there. While he was held in the jail there, he was also seen as crazy by a lot of his fellow prisoners. He was reported to drink his own urine, reported to also laugh at, you know, basically at nothing. You're just like randomly breaking the laughter, even though there was nobody there. Uh, so he was uh, certainly a strange, uh, strange individual. And the timing is even weirder with how he quit his job so abruptly right at the time of the murder. And also uh, he was solicited to take a polygraph and ultimately cleared through it. Although it was actually never talked about in any of the books about Bundy, but was revealed in the uh, in the, the the TV series by Ruth Walsh that I mentioned that he actually refused to wear the blood pressure monitor cuff, which, I mean, polygraphs are very questionable unto themselves. They don't necessarily prove a prove a whole lot on their own, which is why they're not admissible in court. And of course, if we discuss the Ronald Dennis Auth, he was cleared just based on the polygraph, even though there's so much other compelling indications linking him to the case. But certainly, you know, when you're agree to take a polygraph and then you're acting uncooperative about it to the level of violent belligerence, it does raise some questions, you know, and uh, what, what makes you, what made you Joseph Tamos uh, particularly strange as well is that he actually, when they looked into him further, turned out not to just be a viable suspect in Karen Campbell's murder, but also a viable suspect in uh, some of the Seattle murders which at that point had not really been, had not been you know, considered solved by any stretch. So you know, they got in contact with Seattle detective Ivan Beeson, who basically you know, looked into it and was like, actually was like, yeah, he, he was actually living in Seattle at the same time, at the time that these murders were going on in the Pacific Northwest. And incidentally, you know, right after, basically the day after, uh, some of the first remains of Bundy's victims turned up on September 7th, 1974, when some of these, uh, some of these remains turned up really just skulls uh, and not, not much else, but you know, these remains turned up. And then the day, the day after that, Hugh Jess Michael Tamos got himself conveniently arrested by sexually, by making an inappropriate sexual, uh, I think he, he exposed himself to none other than the wife of a Seattle cop. And so he got arrested 
and immediately got on their radar basically the day after these remains first turned up. And so he was in jail for a while. And then after that, he ended up relocating to, uh, to the Aspen, Colorado area, coincidentally, uh, you know, right at the same time this murder of Karen Campbell is about to happen. So it is rather strange that this person, Hugh Jeff Michael Tamos, turned out to be a suspect not just in, uh, you know, not just in the Seattle murders, but also in the Aspen murders, you know, that, that he sort of mirrored Ted Bundy's movements in a way. And that does, that does raise the possibility to me even more strongly that Bundy was involved in a much larger, in a larger group of people who were committing these murders. And that when Bundy made the move from state to state, that other people would sort of follow him in that regard. And it even appears quite possibly that uh, Tamos with his mental instability and, you know, was being set up as a sort of a first initial patsy attempt, you know, the first person who they were trying to lay the blame for these murders on, you know, conveniently revealing himself as a sexual predator to Seattle police the day after the remains are discovered, then turning up an Aspen and causing a scene at causing a scene, making himself get noticed again, and then, you know, quitting abruptly right after Karen Campbell disappears. It does, uh, is very strange. And what is even more strange about it is that when Ted Bundy was on death row about to, you know, you know, about to, uh, you know, about to be executed and was making some last ditch confessions, he reportedly said that before he selected Karen Campbell, he was actually was at the pool of the Wildwood Inn and had his eye on another victim. And uh, so it almost potentially seems as if Ted Bundy at that point was trying to take credit for actions that Hugh Tamos had also been doing, you know, that he was trying to sort of subsume the entire narrative into one, you know, into himself and erase the presence of any other people there. I mean, not definitive, but certainly, you know, certainly interesting uh, appearances that Bundy may have been trying to, you know, that this person Tamos may have been set up as an initial attempt to cover for the real perpetrator of the murder because, you know, he was ultimately dismissed not just based on the polygraph, but also because he just didn't seem like he would have been, you know, subtle and well-measured enough to pull off a crime like this. It would have, you know, been undetectable. No one would have noticed it. But the fact that he was there at all with all these curious coincidences does raise the question of, you know, whether he was sort of being maneuvered around the board to have some kind of greater role, you know, in the, in the cover-up of this, you know. It's sort of, it's the common uh, theme you see in these cases. You just see so many odd characters who have no no direct role that you can prove they had but there are just so many weird coincidences almost as if you almost as if you have backup plans upon backup plans for this uh, but in any event the way the case developed from there was uh, the the investigator for the DA's office in Aspen uh, the guy by the name of Mike Fisher he continued his investigation and uh, ultimately he uh, hit on, basically ended up going with this witness uh, named Elizabeth Harder, who was from Chico, California. She was vacationing at the, same, at the time too at the Wildwood Inn, and she had witnessed something a bit strange. Uh, basically that right by the elevator where Karen Campbell was last seen, you know, sort of getting going towards her room, she had witnessed this mysterious out of place looking man standing right by the elevator, uh, which sort of resonated with her, you know, as something rather strange. And also had seen another man standing a bit further back by a refrigeration unit. 
So she, this statement was reported to Mike Fisher uh, and ultimately Mike Fisher showed a photo lineup to Elizabeth Harder and uh, supposedly at least she picked out Ted, she picked out Ted Bundy from the lineup. You know, at this point, uh, you know, Ted Bundy had, uh, this, this was at a point, you know, well after Ted Bundy's initial arrest in Utah, which we'll get to later, you know, that Bundy was on people's radar as a suspect in all these cases. There was a big interstate conference in November of 1975 to sort of share information between law enforcement agencies. And so Bundy was on Mike Fisher's radar. And so he had him as a suspect and he showed it to Harder and she supposedly picked Bundy out of the lineup. And so, you know, she suddenly they had a case against Bundy and you know, they did more investigation. They found that credit card receipts for gas would place him in, uh, placed him in the area on the very day that this happened. So once, you know, they had a bit more tying him to it, but in the way of solid evidence, they didn't have all that much. They had the credit card stuff placing him there. They had the, uh, the witness sighting. They had, uh, they had a, a supposedly found one single hair, microscopic ha hair that they claim was microscopically identical to uh, Karen Campbell. And that was more or less, you know, the extent of their case, you know, that really this witness statement was key to it, that, you know, she had to identify Bundy as being there or, you know, they wouldn't have much of a case. Well, go to the actual trial itself. And uh, yeah, they brought in essentially the, the DA of the DA in Aspen was a guy named Frank Tucker, but they brought in some out of town muscle from Colorado Springs, uh, Bob Russell and Milton Blakey to actually prosecute the case. So at the trial, or well, the pretrial hearing actually, they got Elizabeth Harder on the stand asked her, you know, various questions and then said, okay, you know, the, per the person you saw, do you see them in the room today? And she basically was like, I can't be sure, but, you know, then she ended up going, she picked someone out of the, uh, the trial gallery, but it was not Ted Bundy. You know, Ted Bundy was sitting at the defense table, uh, you know, and, you know, anyone in, uh, anyone in Elizabeth Carter's position would have almost certainly realized that Ted Bundy is the one who she was expected to point to, you know, that he was a defendant on trial. She was a star witness. And, you know, so she almost certainly would have recognized at that point, there was an expectation of everyone that she was going to identify Bundy, you know, but she did not identify Bundy. Instead, she pointed to a man who was sitting in the front row of the courtroom gallery. He was the under sheriff of Pitton County, the county where Aspen is, his name was Ben Myers. Uh, so this caused quite a stir in the courtroom, you know, that pretty much took a lot of the air out of the state's case. It really stunned the prosecutor. They had no idea. They were not expecting this. It was a total shock to them. And so at that point, you know, at that point, the case just deflated quite a bit. And as later testimony would reveal, there were also a number of significant discrepancies between the accounts of how, between the accounts of how, uh, Elizabeth Harder identified this photo that Mike Fisher showed her and how Mike Fisher claimed it happened. You know, that Elizabeth Harder claimed that she had told Mike Fisher about seeing the, these two weird men by the elevator, by the refrigerator, uh, way back in 1975 when, when she was first interrogated. Mike Fisher claimed that she only told him about it in 1976, a whole year later. Uh, she claimed that, you know, that she identified the person standing back at the refrigeration unit Mike Fisher tried to claim that uh, she identified the person who was standing by the elevator. And you know, at, at trial, she identified Myers as the person standing by the elevator. 
but she insisted that the photo that she identified with Mike Fisher was not of that person by the elevator, but was of the person at the refrigeration unit. And what's also weird about it too, is that you know, even Mike Fisher admitted this himself that uh, in his testimony that she believed, the she believed the man she saw standing at the refrigeration unit uh, was 17 years, was like 17 years old, which of course could not possibly match Ted Bundy. And she basically testified to this too, that she did not think that uh, she actually, when she saw photos of the of Ted Bundy, she really didn't believe that uh, it was the same person who she had seen. So she was expressing some reasonable level of doubt about this. And ultimately, Mike Fisher seemingly did not tell the truth, contradicted his very own witness to make the identification of Ted Bundy seem a lot stronger than it really was. And uh, Incidentally, it's not the only uh, time, not the only instance in this case that Mike Fisher didn't quite tell the truth in order to make the case stronger than it was. He also claimed that another witness had spoken to Karen Campbell as she got off the elevator. Then the witness was called to the stand and immediately said that she never spoke to Karen Campbell and didn't even know what floor she got off on. So multiple times, it appears that Mike Fisher you know, made claims that were not actually true about the case in order to pretty much inch, pin it on Ted Bundy, which is rather strange, but uh, what well, gets stranger and really to the heart of this whole Colorado situation is uh, looking in the background of Ben Myers himself. And you know, when I first came across this, Ben Myers was just a name, a random name under Sheriff of Pitkin County. And so I just went looking and ultimately what I found from there was a much, you know, a massive web of corruption, you know, and crime in Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, effectively, Ben Myers was allegedly sort of the a local kingpin, if you will, uh, of a major uh, corruption scene in Grand Junction, Colorado, that, that took the lives of multiple young women in the city, all in the year 1975. Uh, and it all has to do with drugs and prostitution rings and, you know, money laundering and Ben Myers was reportedly at the center of all of it. So, you know, basically in the year 1975 in Grand Junction was known as the killing season. You know, up to that point, there was not a whole lot of violent crime in Grand Junction for quite a while. And just for geography's sake, Grand Junction is named quite literally because it is at the junction between, uh, you know, Utah and Colorado, basically at the border. And uh, which also in, which also happens to make it a great uh, transshipment point for, it's also on the interstate. So it happens to make it a very good transshipment point for any sort of illicit cargo that you might be moving across state lines, which uh, is a, an important theme of all of this uh, scenario. But anyway, yeah, Grand Junction was all of a sudden pretty much completely out of the blue, rocked by this series of uh, inexplicable murders uh, plaguing, the, plaguing the town. And really, you know, the very first, the very first murder, uh, well, I'll say the commonality between these murders was that all of these women, I mean, they were young, they all had something to do with drugs, you know, they were users, or they were drug traffickers, or they were drug informants, something like that, or they, or they happen to know other, you know, or they happen to know other murder victims, they often knew each other, they had, so there were a number of connections between these victims, suppose, whose murders supposedly were all random and unconnected to each other. And uh, many times these women, you know, they knew, sometimes they directly knew too much about the drug trafficking operations and they knew too much about 
some of the depravities of these local police officers. And uh, that was ultimately the common thread uh, running through everything, you know. So some of the, so among these, uh, these women who were murdered, the first of them was uh, Denise Oliverson, who disappeared on April 8th, 1975. She, her murder, she had at least some involvement in the drug scene, her Grand Junction police documents, and her murder would ultimately be attributed to, to Ted Bundy, although it took quite a while for it to happen, which is rather odd. She, you know, Ted Bundy was supposedly, you know, according to Ben Myers, who, uh, the police chief Ben Myers, who uh, handled this investigation, he said, yeah, we confirmed Ted Bundy by his credit card receipts within the, uh, within the state, within Grand Junction on April 8th, at the same time that Denise Oliverson disappeared. In any event, Denise Oliverson has never been found to this day, and su uh, but supposedly Bundy did make a confession to her murder on, on death row. There are actually conflicting accounts about it. Some articles, some news articles say he made the confession. Some news articles say he never made, he did not make the confession. And for whatever reason, it took about, uh, yeah, like it took thir pretty much 30, yeah, 30 years for the Grand Junction Police Department to close the case. They only just closed it in 2019, even though they supposedly had this confession from Bundy on death row for quite a while, which I think raises even more questions about whether this confession ever happened in the first place. And, you know, from some sources of mine that I've been working with on this Grand Junction stuff, there are actually severe doubts. You know, if you actually ask these people if there is a confession tape, there is basically no evidence that there is one. So the, the way that the whole Grand Junction, the whole uh, murder of Denise Oliverson was closed is weird to begin with, but her, her likely murder was only really the start of what happened at Grand Junction. There were so many more victims throughout the year. Uh, and, and one of the most uh, prominent cases that sort of gripped the town for quite a while was the, uh, the murder of uh, Linda Benson on July 25th, 1975. Uh, Linda Benson, had uh, had made statements to a person in her church group, pretty much saying, you know, if you only knew who the local dealers were, big shots. So she was pretty much outright saying that uh, she knew who the big level drug dealers in Grand Junction and the surrounding area were, that they were prominent people, and that and you know that she so she was pretty much in a position of knowing far too much for her own good. And then not too long after that. She ended up turning up, uh, ended up turning up murdered in her apartment along with her her five year old daughter Kelly Ketchum, and the the year prior to that, her Linda Benson's sister uh, Judy Ketchum actually also turned up dead herself at a campground in Aspen, Colorado. She had been dating a a, a drug dealer herself named Phil Lake, and and then. Uh, Judy, she just turned up dead at a campground. Initial reports seemed to indicate that it was likely homicide, but then the narrative quickly changed and they said that it was nothing more than natural causes. The person who made that ruling, by the way, was none other than Mike Fisher, the same person who would later seemingly engineer the identification of Ted Bundy in the Karen Campbell case. So once again, weird to see the same law enforcement officers taking uh, odd roles on this the whole time. But yeah, no one in Linda Benson's uh, no one in Linda Benson's family believed that uh, believed that Judy was died of natural causes. They all suspected she was murdered. And then a, a year later, 
uh, Linda Benson herself turns up murdered, and she is in a position of knowing a lot about the local drug, uh, local drug scene. Then just a month after that, uh, Linda, uh, Lin one of Linda Benson's friends named Linda Miracle also turns up murdered, as does her neighbor across the street, uh, Pat Botham, spelled B-O-T-H-A-M, and also uh, Linda Miracle's two children, uh, Troy and Chad Miracle. And uh, once again, Linda Miracle was very much in a position of uh, knowing a whole lot about local corruption and uh, misdeeds that these officers were, that some of these officers were reportedly up to. She was a drug informant, but, uh, and uh, she was involved in drugs herself. She was also in sexual relationships with a number of police officers, uh, a number of local police officers in, uh, in, Grand, in the Grand Junction Police Department and the Mesa County Sheriff's Office. You know, her boyfriend actually was a man named Truman Haley, who was, you know, was a sheriff de deputy, but she actually had, but she had many more relationships and she was even keeping track of them in a diary of hers. And then uh, at a certain point, uh, her boyfriend, Truman Haley actually stole her diary, burned it, and then threw it in the Gunnison River. So he basically destroyed evidence of hers that would have recorded all this unsavory, you know, this, embarrassing things to the Grand Junction Police Department and the surrounding authorities and destroyed evidence. And he didn't even lose his job you know, after this. So he was pretty much handled with kid gloves for this, even though it's a major destruction of evidence. Uh, but within the, anyway, Linda, Linda Miracle and Pat Botham, who was a friend of hers, uh, they were basically, they were, uh, Linda Miracle was seemingly in the middle of turning her life around from what she had been involved in previously. You know, she was, uh, Pat Botham had actually been, you know, getting, was about to get Linda Miracle to go to church for the first time. And, you know, both of them were really excited about this. And then back in June, when this was happening on June 15th, 1975, the day that she was supposed to go to church for the first time, Linda Miracle was strangled by an unknown assailant. Someone basically, you know, came up to her, tried to kill her and almost succeeded. Uh, now Pat Botham's husband, uh, Ken Botham actually, you know, came to the rescue, basically came across the street, uh, delivered CPR until the cops showed up. And so Linda Miracle survived, luckily, but she, in the hospital, refused to say, refused to tell the authorities who did it. So, you know, what's weird about it is that uh, there were two responding officers to her at first. One of them was actually her boyfriend, Truman Haley, which is a pretty blatant conflict of interest. But after her interrogation, and she said nothing, you know, the other officer left the room, so she was alone with Truman Haley at that time, and uh, no one knows what was said there. But Truman Haley, in any event, claims that she never told him who it, who it was. But in any case, uh, you know, only about nine weeks later, she was once again, you know, strangled. This time, strangled to death, and her children were her children were shot in the head, and she was all of them were taken out, and they their bodies were, you know weighed down with, you know, basically were tied to weights, weighed down, and then dumped in the Gunnison River as well. Uh, so, you know, this basically, oh, sorry, what I forgot, right before, right before that point, very shortly before that point, uh, Pat Botham had told some of her friends that she and, uh, that she and Linda Miracle were about to come forward with news that would shock the whole town. Uh, so they were clearly about to reveal something very big that would, uh, catch a lot of people's attention about, you know, 
matters going on in Grand Junction. And then not only like a week after that, they turn up, all turn up murdered. And uh, ultimately the crime was pinned on Ken Botham in a rather, you know, stunning, in my opinion, miscarriage of justice. And you can go to uh, kenbotham.com, that's K-E-N-B-O-T-H-A-M.com to read all the material on that page. It's run by uh, Ken Botham's surviving son who still maintains his father was innocent. And the, the entire case against Ken Botham was a pretty much a, a blatant frame up in a lot of ways. You know, first of all, he was undoubtedly the one who saved Linda Miracle's life before from the, uh, from the murder attempt. And uh, you know, at the trial, the prosecution tried to present evidence selectively to make it look as if he was actually the one who had strangled Linda Miracle. And the prosecutor was basically allowed to get away with, basically got away with the stunning misrepresentation of evidence at the trial to make it look like Ken Botham had tried to kill Linda Miracle once before when he actually saved her life. Also, you know, the timing of the death, the timing of these murders just did not match up. Ken Botham had an alibi. He was actually away that night in Ure, Colorado, many miles away. It would have been impossible for him to get back in time. And as soon as this became apparent, the uh, coroner conveniently revised the time of death to a later time to make it possible for Ken Botham to have driven back, uh, driven back and committed the murder. So basically... Ken Botham was, you know, pretty, pretty completely railroaded, framed up for this, uh, these murders that were almost certainly linked to uh, high-level regional corruption in the Grand Junction area, and he's been in prison ever since. He actually got his conviction overturned by the Supreme Court for a couple of reasons, including, you know, evidence that should not have been allowed to get introduced at trial, but he was convicted yet again all the same, and he's been there ever since. So, you know, all of these, uh, all these murders, you know, happening in Grand Junction, all appearing to follow the same pattern. And then you have other suspicious deaths as well that were not officially ruled as murders, but were just suspicious anyway, such as uh, Tracy Freitas, who uh, turned up dead in early October of 1975, who, you know, who knew both of the Lindas, uh, babysat for them, likely knew about some of what they were up to. And then she turns up drowned in a pond and it's ruled as you know an accident or suicide, even though you know, you know, regardless of how you know convenient the timing really is, and that there's no real investigation done to to go any further than that. So all all throughout 1975, a number of these women turned up murdered, and one by one, all of these murders were pinned on some lone nut or another. You know, Denise Oliverson was pinned on Ted Bundy. Linda Benson's murder was ultimately linked by uh, was ultimately linked by uh, DNA to a serial rapist out of the Boulder, Colorado area named Jerry Nemnick, and he was convicted. The Ken Botham was convicted of murdering his wife and uh, and Linda Miracle and Linda Miracle's children, even though there is almost no chance that he was actually guilty of that. And a later murder of uh, Deborah Tomlinson was only just a couple months ago, well, only just last year in December of 2020, finally linked through familial DNA to a man named Jimmy Duncan, who is conveniently dead, and of course can never be put on trial, can never have the evidence scrutinized, and uh, no further investigation will be done. And what's weird about it too, is that even though he's been uh, identified by DNA as, uh, you know, as doing it in the Grand Junction Police Department, basically said to the public the case, that they solved the case, the case is actually still open. 
if you contact the Injunction Police Department and you ask for the records, they will refuse to give them to you because the case is still open. So it makes you wonder if they found their guy, but the police department itself is still ruling that the case is not closed yet. Either they know that there's something more to it or they're trying to hide the evidence in the case for whatever reason. So you know, basically the whole, the whole series of events that happen in Green Junction are you know, tragic and they you know, just you know, boggles the mind of how this, uh, this massive amount of violence could happen and, and uh, with no real recourse and also ultimately be pinned on a number of convenient suspects, even though the, the real, uh, you know, the real origin of all this corruption and crime is by numerous witness accounts, the police officers themselves. There were accounts of all, almost many of these victims partying with police officers and parties that were filled with drugs and being sexually involved with them. There were accounts that uh, Ben Myers kept secret bank accounts uh, to basically maintain proceeds from drug trafficking and prostitution rings that he was pretty much overseeing and uh, allowing to persist in the town. And then with, and with Ben Myers himself, it was undoubtedly the case that he had a lot of uh, problems and depravities in his life. He was he was reportedly in, he reportedly loved to get into bar fights. He you know, there was one incident that one reported incident where he had some fellow deputies of his hold a person down while he repeatedly punched them. He also at the same bar liked to, uh, he bought drinks for a 19 year old girlfriend of his while he was married, by the way, and, uh, and uh, then threatened the local liquor inspector and another cop not to report anything or he, or he would retaliate against them, which ultimately led to his resignation from the Grand Junction Police Force. And, uh, you know, his depth, his, uh, and he also incidentally had a number of, you know, basically was very often missing from work, wouldn't show up for work. There was a big scandal in the local paper about how he continually missed work and didn't really show up for, uh, for a lot of time in the year, which also means that he very easily could have been out of state, you know, on the, when Karen Campbell was, when Karen Campbell was murdered, uh, you know, that's not as if he was constantly preoccupied by Grand Junction police business and never could have done it. It's actually stated out right in the paper that he was very derelict in his police chief duty. But, you know, so ultimately, Ben Meyer is, you know, that one single name of this alternate suspect in the murder of Karen Campbell really opens up a whole world of, you know, corruption and sleaze in Grand Junction, Colorado. And what's weird about it is that uh, not only does, uh, you know, Ben Myers makes an appear makes that appearance in Bundy's case, uh, well, two of Bundy's cases actually, because Bundy was connected to both Karen Campbell's murder, which Ben Myers was identified in as the perpetrator, and also Bundy was connected to Denise Oliverson's murder, which was part of this whole killing season in Grand Junction that likely ties back to the police department in the first place. Bundy himself also shows up in one of these Grand Junction murder cases, and it's very uh, not really remarked on that much, but one of the witnesses who was at right outside of Linda Benson's apartment on the night of her murder actually saw Ted Bundy there and basically said yeah as soon as they saw Bundy on the tv they immediately recognized that, yeah I saw you know I saw this guy at the at the murder scene so you know Ted Bundy shows up in some of the cases that are likely connected to Myers just as Myers shows up in the cases that were connected to Bundy and you know for in the Linda Benson uh, homicide case there actually is one witness account indicating that a uh, 
a local police officer who was known to be selling drugs to high school students, at, known to be selling drugs to local high school students, was at the scene of the crime that night, uh, was seen by a witness on the roof. So beyond just Jerry Nemnick, the one person who was convicted, you have possibly Ted Bundy in the mix. You have possibly uh, this local cop who was involved who was involved in drug dealing themselves while being on the police force. So you know this. Uh, honestly, this uh, sleaze and ranger can never seems to end. And then at the same time, you have uh, some of uh, Ben Myers' former colleagues from Salem, Oregon, uh, on the back when Ben Myers was the police chief of Salem, Oregon, before he came to Grand Junction to be their police chief. Ben Myers was particularly close to a couple of deputies on Salem who later seemed to have followed him out to Colorado in various capacities. Uh, one of them was a man named Jerry Frazier, who was rather infamous, or I say rather just famous in general, for uh, helping to solve the Jerome Brutos serial killer case that Ann Rule wrote another book on called The Lust, the Lust Killer. Uh, and uh, Jerry Frazier was instrumental in that case. And then uh, Right at, around the time that Ben Myers moved from Salem to Grand Junction, Jerry Frazier also moved from Salem to Grand Junction, and Frazier ended up moving up very high in the ranks. He was one of the few privileged people on the Grand Junction Police Force to see organized crime intelligence. He was literally one of the lead officers in the task force, you know, for some of these murders, like Deborah Tomlinson's murder, uh, and you know he was also like the allegations surrounding Myers. He was also prone to get into these altercations at local bars he was actually reportedly one of the people who ben myers uh who helped hold down this person while ben myers attacked him you know so you have this uh sort of coterie of uh local cops in ben myers orbit who are all involved in the same kinds of unsavory activities and another individual who was also close to ben myers the man by the name of jim stovall another salem cop who was also on the jerome brutos case who actually was nominated by Ben Myers for Officer of the Year, who won it and traveled with Myers back in the early 70s to an Atlantic City, New Jersey convention. Uh, he, he had a, uh, a daughter who was, you know, he had a daughter uh, who was a ski instructor in Vail, Colorado. And this daughter was actually best friends or very close friends with Julie Cunningham, who was another one of Ted Bundy's alleged Colorado victims. Uh, who disappeared in, on March 15th, 1975. And uh, just to note, Vail, Colorado itself is also a major drug transshipment point uh, with connections leading all the way back to none other than Flo Fort Lauderdale, Florida, the same jurisdiction in which Karen Campbell was a police, was a, a, Karen Campbell's brother was a police officer. There was a, uh, a man by the name of Alan Rivenbark out of Fort Lauderdale who owned a, uh, owned a property called the Black Mountain Guest Ranch out, out near Vail, Colorado. It was, it was called a, a hideout for East Coast mobsters. And he was on a plane, uh, you know, he and a couple other people in a social circle on a plane traveling from uh, Fort Lauderdale out to Vail, Colorado. And in November of 1981, the plane crashed and all of them, everyone on board died, including, uh, including a woman who is the fiance of a uh, of John Walsh's boss. That would be John Walsh, the father of the missing boy, Adam Walsh. But uh, not to digress too much, but just pointing out that this, uh, that Alan Rivenbark was this major prolific drug trafficker in the Fort Lauderdale area, who owned this property out in Bell, Colorado, part of this pipeline between the two cities. And then you see that, uh, not, and you see the Ben Myers being linked to the murder of a Fort Lauderdale cop's sister. 
and then you see a murder in Vail, Colorado, uh, that is connected to, that is connected with the friend uh, the friend of uh, basically someone who was close to one of Ben Myers' top deputies. You know, the once again, as with the Pacific Northwest situation, as with the uh, you know all of these, it's almost impossible to directly piece together exactly you know what happened. You know, who knows what if these things are all just coincidence or if there's more to it, but no doubt, you know, that there is a number of stunning connections linking together all of these individuals to all of these, you know, organized crime, you know, organized crime networks, these weird cults, and, you know, it just seems to go round and round like this. And uh, one final note about Grand Junction that I can bring up too, which is a, a bit a uh, bit strange as well, is that uh, in September of 1975, there was actually another weird cult that came to Grand Junction that, uh, some of you that uh, some of you probably will uh, know will know by name uh, the Heaven's Gate cult, or at least the earliest in- incarnation of it. Basically, the Marshall Applewhite and Bonnie Truesdale came from Oregon, took all their followers with them, and went out to Grand Junction, Colorado, and you know, had a big uh, whole big meeting there, right in the middle of all this uh, killing spree that was going on. So you have a UFO-oriented cult. Well, all these murders connected to drug trafficking and local police corruption are happening in the city too, just uh, on top of everything else. You know, it's the level of weirdness uh, that you get when you tap just below the surface of the story is almost incomprehensible. And it all comes about from this one mention by what, this one witness who identified Ben Myers instead of Ted Bundy when she was expected to identify Bundy. Oh, yeah. And um, let me see here. Um, Shoot, I had a point here I was going to make, but it's escaping my mind at the moment. Uh, Shouldn't have started dinner. I was in the process of writing that down. But uh, anyway, let's see here. Okay, so um, do you want to get into Bundy's, um, you know, major arrest? That- oh, yes. The other thing that had occurred to me, too, this was in Colorado. This was also, I think, around the time that um, the first reports of cattle mutilation started to come out, too. Like, what, in the late 70s or something like that? Right. Yes. And and that is uh, another very uh, odd correspondence between all of this, that you have... You know, at the same time that all this cult activity is being alleged uh, with these murders in Pacific Northwest and that you have these mur- seeming drug-related murders going on in and around Grand Junction, you have, yeah, this rash of cattle mutilations. And of course, you know, as, as much as the, uh, as, although, although there are obviously a lot of paranormal theories about this, it's also quite likely, you know, that, you know, cult activity is a explanation is an explanation for that that doesn't even require getting into that sort of supernatural stuff and uh what's interesting too is that the the heaven the heaven's gate cult or what it was called back then i think it was called the two back then was actually connected directly to cattle mutilations in the midwest so yeah you know what you're talking about with these ufo cults and these uh cattle mutilation activities that all seem to trace back to cult activity uh very likely is uh definitely an interesting uh parallel to bring up and what's interesting too is that one of the people who uh left to join the heaven gate cult in colorado actually came from west alice wisconsin which is where jeffrey dahmer uh grew up with his grandmother so you know there's a number of uh, weird connections you can draw to cases like these 
And I guess one thing I forgot to mention too is that uh, Linda Benson's, Linda, when Linda Benson was murdered, there was a, a cross carved onto her chest and uh, also a pattern of stab wounds on her chest that was said to uh, resemble a pattern with, with associated with California cult killings. And the cross carved into the chest, meanwhile, was described by Henry Lee Lucas as being a sign of, of a hand of death murder. You know, that was uh, pretty talked about directly by him. So you have uh, many signs that these murders were, you always seem to find cults in the background of this stuff. Absolutely. So uh, do you want to get into uh, Bundy's first major arrest then in, uh, what was it, Utah? Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, after all the stuff happened, uh, you know, all of these murders attributed to Bundy, he was, the law finally did uh, catch up with him, it seems, although for a somewhat bizarre reason. You know, he, he happened to be driving through a neighborhood in Utah, and he ended up passing by the house of a Utah Highway Patrol officer named Bob Hayward. And uh, Bob Hayward, you know, Bob Hayward just, you know, thought it was odd because he didn't recognize the car. So he came up behind, you know, tried to come up behind them. And then uh, the car that Bundy was driving immediately, you know, turned his lights off and started driving away rapidly. And uh, so he, he ended up running two stop signs. And so uh, Bob Hayward stopped him and basically, you know, started questioning him. And supposedly Bundy, uh, gave, supposedly Bundy then told a lie about why he was uh, in the neighborhood. He claimed he got lost and that he had seen a movie, but the movie was not actually playing. And so Bob Hayward immediately got suspicious and started, you know, uh, searching Bundy's car. Now, Ted Bundy claimed, now Hayward would claim that the search was uh, consensual, that Bundy agreed to it. Bundy would later claim that he never agreed to it. And uh, it's hard to say who is telling the truth, but I have to say that if Bundy is anywhere nearly as smart as people try to present him as in, the, in these true crime media, I do find it hard to believe that if he was carrying incriminating evidence and he had the option to refuse a search that he would have uh, instead just consented to it. So I have to say there are some doubts in my mind about the whole way that this went down in the first place. I also wonder why Bob Hayward, you know, he called, basically called in some other highway patrol officers for backup while he was doing this, even though there was no indication there was no real definitive indication there was any actual, you know, threat or anything, but regardless, the search happened and uh, they found a number of things like a crowbar, a ski mask. Uh, they found an ice pick. And I should note that an ice pick was also the weapon used to uh, deliver the fatal uh, blow to Arliss Perry at Stanford University in 1974. So, you know, there's potentially a commonality of types of weapons that were used by different members of these cults. Uh, but anyway, they found all these items and Bundy you know, would give these innocuous explanations for them, but they pretty much booked him on a charge of possessing burglary tools. So he was brought to the you know, Salt Lake City authorities and you know, questioned about the stuff, but he ultimately was bonded out. There was no real proof that anything uh, nefarious, that he had done anything nefarious at the time. But in any case, uh, the Salt Lake City police started looking pretty quickly at Bundy after this. And uh, what's interesting about it is that the, the person who arrested Bundy, Bob Hayward, his brother, Pete Hayward, was actually the, the captain of the Salt Lake City Police Department who did, uh, who handled the homicide division there. So a bit of potential nepotism there that Pete Hayward is running the homicide department and his brother just happens to be the one who arrested Bundy. 
is a bit interesting to me, but again, could be a coincidence as these cases often go, it's hard to tell. So cap under the direction of Captain Pete Hayward, uh, you know, this homicide detective in Salt Lake City, particularly Jerry Thompson, began looking quite strongly at Ted Bundy as a suspect for all these different murders that that had happened in uh, you know, that happened around the Salt Lake City area. Now, the first real uh, connection that they got was you know, they brought in Carol DeRanche and they pretty much asked her, to, they tried to get her to identify Bundy out of a lineup. She initially was not able to identify Bundy. You know, she just you know, couldn't really, didn't recognize anyone. Later, uh, you know, later she did, uh, you know, later she was able to, although there were some reports that the identification may have been tainted by, you know, either, uh, you know, the Pete Hayward was sort of directing her to make the identification. That was basically, the, I think that was a theory that Bundy's defense counsel at the time were advocating for. But in any case, Carol Durant made this identification, however genuine it was. And so that was a cause for Bundy to ultimately be charged for her. Carol Durant's kidnapping. And uh, after that, a series of other identifications were made, although many of them, in my opinion, were very questionable, particularly the identification of uh, Bundy as being the one at Beaumont High School who spoke to the drama teacher, Raylan Shepard, given that she had already made her identification of a different, of a different individual, Ronald and Auth, and also given the fact that, as we discussed before, there's basically no way that Bundy could have possibly been at both places. So if they got an identification for him uh, being Carol Durant's abductor, they could pretty much rule out right away that he had anything to do with the murder of Deborah Kent, but they showed no concern whatsoever about this blatant and inherent contradiction. They linked Bundy to, they linked Bundy to uh, these murders. They never charged him with any, with any of these murders in Utah. They charged him and convicted him on the uh, Carol Durant kidnapping. And interestingly enough, uh, one of Bundy's defense witnesses in the trial was actually the, uh, the somewhat well-known, well not necessarily well-respected Elizabeth Loftus, who is a big advocate of false memory uh, claims when it comes to witness statements and also when it comes to accounts of child abuse. She's actually been a member on the False Memory Syndrome Foundation and uh, seems to be a constant uh, constant presence whenever you need to discredit an account of sexual abuse or anything else. She was on the defense team for, uh, trying to remember who the person in Massachusetts uh, was, this uh, Catholic priest, oh yeah, Paul, Paul Shanley, who was involved with the North American Man by Love Association from the early days and was charged with child molestation. She was on his defense team in the early 2000s. She was on Scooter Libby's defense team. Uh, she was on Oliver North's defense team. She, she really got around and she, in her early days, was on Ted Bundy's defense team for the Carol DeRanche uh, kidnapping. But ultimately, Bundy was convicted. Like, like I said before, it's possible that there was a better suspect in the form of Douglas Allen Yoakum, who was, you know, connected with these, you know, Mormon, with these Mormon groups, at least in some way. There's no definitive, there's no definitive link to it, though. You know, I want to be cautious about that. I have no direct evidence that Yoakum had anything to do with this, but he certainly was an alternative suspect who appeared to be a more accurate physical uh, representation of the perpetrator. But, uh, but anyway, Bundy was convicted nonetheless. He was sentenced. And immediately after that point, uh, he was then extradited out to Colorado to face the charges on Karen Campbell's murder. 
And uh, as I said before, you know, the trial, you know, the trial really uh, got the wind taken out of their sail very early on when the wit their star witness failed to identify Ted Bundy as the man she had seen, instead identified Ben Myers. And so I should say there's very uh, strong doubt that the conviction of Bundy on Karen Campbell's murder ever would have happened. And they were even trying to introduce prior cases uh, that Bundy had supposedly committed. They were trying to introduce, uh, I believe they were trying to introduce uh, like the Deborah Kent murder as a so-called similar transaction, you know, a prior case that Bundy was part of, even though Bundy had never even been charged with that murder or, you know, he had never been convicted, let alone charged with it at all in Utah. And the prosecutors in Colorado were trying to bring up these murders anyway to try and shore up their weak case for Bundy having committed the Karen Campbell murders. Absurd when you think about it, but they're ultimately, you know, they were denied on most of these, uh, introducing most of these cases. So the prosecution at that point was pretty much left with almost nothing, no real resources or anything else. And uh, so as, as we can get to in a bit, rather conveniently, Bundy ended up escaping and the trial never took place, never completed. Would you want to get into Bundy's escape now then? Sure, yeah. And uh, it's a bit weird. There were actually two, you know, first one, and both of them are rather implausible. The second one is probably by far the worst in terms of being plausible, though. First time, you know, Bundy was in the jail in the prison library doing research for his defense, and somehow he was left unguarded while this was going on, and he was actually able to... Uh, jump out, he was able to jump out a window and just like completely escape and was able to find a cabin that happened to be abandoned, pry the, like pry the, pry some frame, I think a window frame off and break in, even though a person who maintained the cabin would later say that it would have needed superhuman strength to pry it off. So again, have to question whether Bunny was really alone for that, but ultimately he was recaptured. He, you know, tried to escape, but he got disoriented in the snowstorm. And so he was brought back in and he was transferred out to the uh, jail in Barfield County, uh, which is like basically part of the same judicial district, but a bit further west of Aspen. And this time he, he had an even more daring and more hard to believe escape. Uh, he somehow, Ted Bunny was able to get a hacksaw into his cell, cut a hole in the ceiling without anybody noticing that he was doing it. You know, you would think that if you're cutting through, you know, presumably a metal uh, ceiling that somebody would have caught onto it at a certain point. But able to cut the hole into the ceiling and then basically able to get inside, basically get in the walls of the building that were supposed, apparently the walls were just big, wide open and empty and crawl through them. There was even a, an informant in the prison who heard this going on, who heard Bundy, you know, crawling around in this. And they were just completely brushed off for whatever reason. After Bundy, after Bundy managed to uh, cut a hole in his cell and escape, he you know, crawled around. He was able to drop into a closet that connected to an office that no one was occupying at the time. And then he literally just walked out the door of the prison. After that, he luckily for him managed to find a car that was able to drive in the snow that already had that happened to have keys just left in the ignition. So that's very lucky for him. He was able to drive for a while and then the car broke down. He was able to uh, find another person to hitchhike to Vail, Colorado with. From there, he caught a bus to Denver. 
And then he was, uh, then he was able to, from Denver, catch a flight to Chicago. No indication, by the way, of how he was able to pay for either one of those because he would not have been expected to have money while he was in prison. Uh, but anyway, after getting to Colorado, getting to Chicago, he supposedly then stole a car and then he drove to Atlanta and then from there drove to Tallahassee and started a new identity for himself. So supposedly Ted Bundy is able to do all of this on his own. You know, the hacksaw, the you know, getting the hacksaw, going going out of the prison without anyone realizing it. He is lucky enough to find a car with the keys left in it for him. So that's nice of whoever did that. Then he's able to uh, get both a bus and an airplane flight, even though he should have had no money. So there's no no explanation of how that happened either. And he's able to go pretty much more than halfway across the country to start a new life for himself. You know, it's a pretty absurd story on the face of it. And at a certain, at one point, Bundy actually did later, you know, after his capture in Florida, speaking to interrogators, pretty much said, you know, when he was asked, um, you know, how, he was like, how did you, you know, get all the, how do you get the money for this stuff? You know, how did you pull this off? And he outright said, you know, there are other people who are involved in the escape. So Bundy even outright indicated that he did not act alone for that portion of what he was doing. But, uh, and what's interesting too, is that the district attorney in Aspen, uh, a guy by the name of Frank Tucker, had actually said that, uh, he, he basically said he believed that Ted Bundy had accomplices and he was a sort of hot on the trail of trying to catch those accomplices in late 1978 after Bundy escaped, or sorry, late 1977 after Bundy, I believe it was late 1977 after Bundy escaped, he was trying to catch these accomplices. And then uh, unfortunately, Frank Tucker soon found his career destroyed by a, a big uh, corruption scandal and that he had uh, had this mistress, he used state funds to, like he had a girlfriend, he used state funds to, to finance their life and even fly them out on a vacation and pay, I believe, pay for an abortion of hers. So this scandal on Frank Tucker pretty much broke immediately as soon as he began probing into these, you know, accomplices to Bunny's escape. And there is little doubt that Frank Tucker was involved in this corruption, but at the same time, he was able to operate for quite a while without any of this coming to light. And he was involved in a cover-up of his own in uh, conveniently losing the diary of a uh, of this uh, French music artist, uh, Claudine Longier, like losing a diary that would have uh, proved, that would have helped basically proving their case uh, against her for the murder of her boyfriend, uh, an Olympic skier named Spider Sabich. So basically he pretty much trashed the case uh, on, on behalf of this uh, prominent, wealthy and prominent uh, French singer and uh, so he was playing the game back then, but you know, as soon as he stepped out of line and started investigating this uh, obvious, you know, blaring oversight in the Bundy case of how he could have escaped like this, suddenly the hammer comes down on him, and all the corruption they were able to get away with up until that point just comes out, and uh, and he was forced to resign and pretty much uh, left his career as district attorney after that. Never went back to it. He ended up in the mortician uh, career actually, but anyway, you know. So there are clear indications that these that Bundy's escape, you know, was you know facilitated by other people. That it wasn't just him on his own. You have to have had the best luck in the world to be able to pull this off all on his own. And it just boggles the mind how it could. And it wasn't just lucky for Bundy. It was also incredibly lucky for the state of Colorado, although most people don't see it that way. Because given how uh, far the case had sunken, there is really there's very little chance that the 
state of Colorado, you know, would have been able to convict Ted Bundy on Karen Campbell's murder at that point. Their star witness had identified somebody else. They had almost nothing. They had a ton of other circumstances, tiny piece of circumstantial evidence, but really nothing that could even tie Bundy to being in the Wildwood in that day at all. So, and at the same time, given that Ben Myers, who was connected to all of this unsavoriness and Grand Junction, was now coming under scrutiny as an alternate suspect in the murder, it probably was best for everyone, all things considered, the Colorado case got dropped and never picked back up again. So, but both Bundy and his uh, captors almost certainly had a common interest in ensuring that Bundy never stood trial for the Colorado murder of, that he was being charged with. And so there we get his rather convenient escape and his uh, change of venue out going out to Tallahassee, Florida, where he uh, then began the next phase of his crime spree, reportedly. Yes, yes. Good old Florida. Um, that's another state that comes up a lot in this literature. Of course, uh, Henry Lee Lucas claimed to have uh, been trained at a uh, paramilitary facility uh, in the Everglades, which uh, roughly aligned with where anti-Castro Cubans have been trained uh, roughly 10 to 15 years earlier. Uh, of course, you also have, oh gosh, so many serial killers. And oh, yes, Adolfo Constanzo, you uh, alluded to earlier, Metamoros, the butcher of Metamoros. Uh, he was actually a Cuban American who had uh, spent a fair portion of his youth in the Miami, Fort Lauderdale area. Uh, he ended up in Mexico uh, working at the uh, behest of the drug cartels and uh, the Mexican security services. Uh, who also were closely aligned with uh, their counterparts in the United States. So yeah, it was a, um, a fitting place for uh, Mr. Bundy to bring his uh, criminal career to a conclusion. So George, what about it? Well, basically the uh, first, first crime that could really be linked to, uh, to Bundy there was the murder of a number of women at, a, uh, at the Chi Omega sorority house at Florida State University in uh, uh, on January 15th of 1978. So a couple weeks after his escape and having it settled into this new identity, uh, he supposedly came to this uh, sorority house and then committed a, a rather brutal uh, you know, mass murder. You know? And I should note that this was very much out of the parameters of what he had usually, uh, usually he had targeted individual victims. He had only gone after one woman at a time, but now here was a major break from his standard MO of targeting an entire house full of women and bludgeoning them all, bludgeoning multiple of them to death and sexually assaulting them and just committing an incredibly brutal attack, you know, on this, uh, on this house of, you know, college, college women. And uh, so that, that was the, you know, it was a crime that really just, uh, you know, just stunned the, stunned the people of Tallahassee and, you know, that you know something of this level of brutality seemingly out of nowhere, but uh, what's uh, what's curious about it is that uh, that that well a couple things uh, that 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 very night um, a man named uh, Darius Spindler, who was the uh, who was the forensic uh, pathologist who had examined many of the skulls that turned up in the Pacific Northwest for uh, you know. Who were attributed, to, who were considered Bunny's victims. He just happened to be in Tallahassee that very same night that the murders took place. And then when he heard about the next day, he was like, hmm, sounds like, you know, this could be Ted Bundy's work, you know? So 
rather so weird coincidental correspondence there already of this uh, figure, this figure there from the bunny case showing up in Tallahassee at the same time. Uh, but ultimately, you know, beyond all of the, beyond the, you know, the tragedy of what did happen to these women, you know, the, the evidence against Ted Bundy is actually relatively problematic and seems to point away from him in certain respects and indicate that at the very least, even if Ted Bundy was involved in these murders and there's a decent chance that he had something to do with, there's a possibility he had something to do with them, that he did not act alone. Multiple pieces of evidence point to people other than Bundy being part of it. And uh, say the most, the one of the clearest indications is, uh, is forensic evidence that uh, there, was, uh, there was semen found in the bed of one of the victims, uh, Cheryl Thomas. And th this was, you know, considered to very likely be from, from the assailant. It was tested and it was found to come from a, a non-secretor, that is someone who does not secrete uh, their blood type information in their bodily fluids like semen and saliva. But Bundy, on the other hand, was proven to be a secretor, someone who does secrete that blood type information. So already you have, you have evidence of at least one assailant who is not Ted Bundy. And uh, the other sort of strange thing about it all is that uh, the other sort of major linchpin of the case against Bundy was bite mark evidence, you know, forensic bite mark evidence that had been made on one of the victims. And supposedly these bite marks found on the victim were a perfect match to Ted Bundy. But there's actually something that's very problematic about that whole thing, that Bundy was, uh, and this is confirmed by none other than Bundy's defense investigator, Joe Alloy, it's called A-L-O-I, and Joe Alloy, for what it's worth, does believe that Bundy was guilty, but he also basically admits, you know, this bite mark evidence is junk. There's not, you know, it's not valid. And uh, what, you know, what happened was Bundy was uh, essentially was solicited for, uh, for casts to be made of his teeth to be compared to these supposed bite mark, uh, supposed bite marks that were found on the victim. And Bundy basically, you know, uh, chipped his, Bundy sort of chipped his tooth, uh, you know, deliberately, you know, chipped his tooth and then basically said, let them explain that now. And uh, so the cast of his teeth was then taken after his tooth had been chipped. And yet it was said to be a perfect match for the, uh, said to be a perfect match for bite marks that were made at a time when Bundy's tooth had not been chipped. And there's really no way that this could, uh, could be possible, you know, that if the bite marks were a perfect match for Bundy's chipped tooth when his tooth was not chipped at the time, then you know clearly someone is lying in some way. You know, they're either forcing a match that's not real, or they're actually or even worse, the evidence itself is completely fabricated from whole cloth that there never were bite marks and they basically just took the uh, pretty much just took the uh, the bite marks from Bundy and used them to fabricate new ones. And uh, there is actually a possibility that, that is what happened because the expert witness for the prosecution who testified about the bite marks uh, basically said, you know, in order to do his analysis, he took the, the plaster cast model of Bundy's teeth and then used them to bite the, bite the victim's cadavers and then looked at, the, looked at the marks that were produced that way. So the, it is rather ironic and strange that the process used to validate Bundy's bite marks is also exactly the process that one would use if you wanted to create bite marks that never 
actually existed in the first place. And given the strangeness of uh, Ted Bundy's, you know, of the bite marks matching Ted Bundy uh, in a state that he was not in at the time that the murders took place, I think that there does have to be a serious consideration of the possibility that this evidence was made up out of whole cloth in the first place. And you know, people generally interpret what Bundy said, you know, the whole let them let them explain that now as him being, you know, you know, trying to elude the authorities and you know, mislead them and try to trick them. I think that there's another potential reading if you consider the possibility that Bundy realized that he was starting to get set up in a certain, you know, in a certain way, that he was starting to become the fall guy for a lot of murders that were not just his own work. And if he realized that he was about to become the fall guy, he probably would have started doing everything he could to uh, change that about himself, you know, and try to, you know, muck up the case as much as possible to make sure that they couldn't pin it on him. And that's, uh, you know, another potential reading of it in light of everything else that had happened, you know, that Bundy went from this sort of political golden boy that, you know, everyone, you know, that was well-respected, no one even would believe that he was uh, capable of this sort of thing, to having his name get used in the, uh, in the uh, murders of Janice and Denise Naslund, and then becoming, and then a year after that, getting arrested, and then quickly turned into the suspect that everyone believes did it, and being, having all these murders pinned on him that he could not have possibly done. You know, he would have known, too, that he couldn't have done both the Carol Durant and the uh, and the Deborah Kent murders at once, and you would so certainly it's not me trying to say oh Ted Bundy's innocent, poor Ted Bundy, you know, because clearly he has a number of the you know, he has a lot of depravities inside of him, and I'm certain that he has committed many murders, but pinning every single murder on him and him alone is an untenable position to take, and I do believe that Bundy realized at a certain point that he was being turned into this fall guy for what was happening. And at that point, it would make sense to do everything possible to revert that. So, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of, uh, so those two things really do cast a lot of doubt on Bundy being the sole perpetrator. It doesn't mean that he was not involved. I think it's a good chance that he was. But as the sole person who was involved, it is very unlikely that it could have been him. The forensic evidence really points away from Ted Bundy and not towards him. Now, what's Troubling about the uh, way the case disposition occurred, though, is that this evidence, you know, which should have uh, at least put reasonable doubt in the mind of the jurors, did not succeed at doing that. You know, when they brought up the, uh, well, first of all, the bite mark evidence, uh, Bunny's defense counsel more or less failed him. They claimed to have, they said they had these photographs that they could prove, you know, Bunny had not had, not had a chip tooth at the time but they somehow never introduced this as evidence. So they basically failed him on that front and ineffective defense counsel is of course the theme that runs through many serial killer cases that you'll find in Program to Kill. But then in terms of the, uh, sec the secretor versus non-secretor evidence, the jurors for whatever reason did not seem able to understand what this evidence actually meant. You know, they basically said, well, the evidence told me that, but one, I think one of them said, I think this is very close to the exact quote, one juror basically said, well, the evidence told me he was a secretor, so that fit right in, even though, of course, uh, Bundy was, you know, I mean, the, even though, you know, the evidence from the semen found at the victim's bed was from a non-secretor, so, of course, it didn't fit right in, but the juror, for whatever reason, believed that it did, and, I mean, this can be attributed to one of two possibilities, I feel like, either ineffective defense counsel yet again, or, alternatively, uh, you know, 
Alternatively, that the jury itself had been stacked against Bundy or quite possibly a combination of both. One of the weirder things to come out of the, that happened during this trial is that Bundy had a uh, jury expert, a so-called jury expert who was with him and then you know, helping him out in the selection of jurors by the name of Emil Spillman. And Emil Spillman was a, a doctor in Atlanta. Uh, he ran a practice there and he was actually, a, he was a hypnotist. And he, the history of Emil Spillman is rather provocative in that sense. He was, uh, he formerly served in the Korean War in the Marines. He, uh, and then he was at a, uh, he was at a 1969 seminar uh, on hypnotism run by the American Institute of Hypnosis. And the American Institute of Hypnosis was founded by uh, a man you're probably familiar with, Stephen, uh, William Joseph Bryan, who uh, shows up in multiple contexts as the uh, alleged programmer of Sirhan Sirhan, RFK's convicted assassin, and also the alleged programmer of Arthur Bremer, the, uh, the individual who, uh, who tried, tried to shoot George Wallace, and then also the alleged hypnoprogrammer of Candy Jones from the, uh, the, the, the book. Trolling yeah, of Candy, Candy Jones. Jones. Yeah, so this, this individual, William Griffith Bryan, who himself is also a Korea veteran. He was in the Air Force. Yeah, he was in the Air Force and what he described as the brainwashing section, which is really interesting. I mean, when you look at sort of the history of a lot of this stuff, uh, I think the Korean War is very uh, crucial to all of it. A lot of uh, interesting cults get going in the aftermath of the Korean War, and you uh, see a lot of military veterans lurking in the uh, background. I mean, of course, we're currently looking at some of this uh, in regards to the Unification Church. You could also point to the Finders, uh, which have been set up by Marion Petty, an Air Force veteran. Uh, you know, another one you sort of have is the Mankind Research Unlimited outfit we've detailed before, which really appears to be a Navy operation. Yeah. Um, it's a very fascinating topic. And uh, Brian also was a wandering bishop uh, to boot. So. Right, yeah, exactly. And he possibly even did know David Ferry, although it's not uh, not definitive. But yeah, I mean, so William Joseph Bryan, you know, he was a uh, he was a veteran of the Korean War in the brainwashing section, as you say, in the Air Force. But it is rather interesting that he and Emil Spillman are both hypnotists, both veterans of the Korean War, albeit in different uh, branches of the military, though I think there was a decent amount of fluidity between the two especially when it comes to the more uh, MKUltra type of uh, work they were doing. But yeah, Emil Spielman shows up at a seminar that William Joseph Bryan was running in 1969. And then just uh, about a decade later, he shows up on Ted Bundy's defense team for some reason as a jury expert, although there's no indication of how his expertise when it comes to selecting a jury comes up. But nevertheless, you end up with a jury that appears to be totally stacked against Bundy, even though Bundy supposedly has, you know, the, this expert helping him pick it and was doing it all, you know, according to what he wanted, you would get these people who cannot even understand basic uh, forensic evidence that would exonerate Ted Bundy all on its own. And so Bundy is yet again convicted of uh, the, uh, is convicted of these murders at the Chi Omega sorority house. Now, and now this all happened, however, this all happened after, you know, uh, another murder, the final murder attributed to Ted Bundy that he is uh, accused of committing. That is the murder of a 12-year-old girl, Kimberly Leach, on February 9th, 1978. But once again, somewhat of a deviation from Bundy's normal MO, which was to target, you know, old, older teenage girls or, you know, young 20s girls, you know, 
12-year-old girl was certainly out of his MO, usual MO, but nevertheless, this is the final crime that is attributed to Ted Bundy. And uh, yet again, there are a couple, you know, once again, you know, weird aspects about it, you know, not necessarily to say that, you know, Bundy was not involved, but that there are certainly questions raised about him. You know, as I go through the whole thing, you know, I don't want anyone to misconstrue, you know, I, you know, I'm not, you know, in the camp of, oh, poor, you know, poor Ted Bundy, you know, I don't exactly feel a whole lot of sympathy for him. But what I do think, and what I always think is that the legal system needs to be held accountable to work properly and, you know, maintain its standards. Because when you step outside of that, you create a system where you can pretty much reward anyone for anything. And knowing the truth about these cases is important. You know, it's an important part of justice for everyone who is, uh, you know, who becomes a victim of these things, you know, that if you don't hold accountable every single person that was involved, then you have let people get away with these horrendous crimes like murder and rape and, you know, other things like that, you know, that if I believe that Bundy was involved in a number of these crimes and, you know, not trying to exonerate him in any way, but what I am pointing out is that if Bundy didn't act alone for any of them, or if he was even innocent of some of them, and that he was basically taking the fall for other people, potentially people who were more politically connected than him, who needed to be, uh, who you know needed to be needed cover. That you know it's not acceptable to just say, well, Bundy was part of it, so that's it. You know, I, I don't care for other people. We got one guy. We got justice. That's not justice. You know, it's justice when you get everyone who is part of it and hold them all accountable. And when the system works as it should, and you know, I don't think that it's. I don't think that it's acceptable to break and bend procedure, you know, just to get a conviction. I think, you know, and I think that oftentimes when it does happen, it's because the to go through the full process and get the full truth and go into a more complicated picture than what everyone, than the simple loan nut narrative everyone wants, you know, that that is the, uh, that's often the objective. And that's exactly what we enable when we allow these manipulations of the legal process to slide. But anyway, uh, my long rant aside on that, our justice system. Yeah, you know, Bundy was, the day before the murder of Kimberly Leach, there was another, there was an incident targeting a uh, police officer in Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, uh, basically, there was a, a detective named Jim Parmenter, P-A-R-M-E-N-T-E-R, who was relatively high up in the police department there by one account of Ann Rule, who was actually the chief of detectives. His daughter, on her way home from school, was actually approached by this guy in a van who, you know, sort of, you know, trying to solicit her into it, saying he was a firefighter. And her brother luckily came over and stopped anything from happening. And he also uh, reported the license plate number as it was uh, driving away. And then a day later, this van turns up in connection with the uh, abduction of Kimberly Leach, who is late, you know, later found uh, murdered herself. And so ultimately, ultimately, when Bundy is, uh, when Bundy was arrested and charged with this murder, he was, uh, there was evidence presented that was linking him to this, uh, to this man, although uh, not, not a whole, not the most compelling evidence, you know, the, the, the children of Jim Parmenter had to go under hypnosis, uh, under hypnosis in order to even identify uh, Bundy as the person who approached him in the first place, and of course, there is no you know, when you go under hypnosis, went under it, hypnosis, and this was admissible, even though, yeah, I mean, they throw out how many witness accounts uh, taken from under hypnosis of sexual abuse or paranormal phenomena or 
but yeah it, it's fine to identify ted bundy like oh my oh lord that is just too much yeah it, it's it really you know, yet seems like you know, they were willing to pull out all the stops just to make sure that you know they would get the identification they wanted but you know really when you look at it you know they have the only real connection they established between Bundy and being the person who owned this van in the first place is the uh, this hypnosis session. The only evidence that uh, Kimberly Leach was ever in the van in the first place is relatively, you know, questionable fiber evidence. You know, they try to claim, well, you know, denim from her jeans was found in the van, you know, and, and from her purse, as if, you know, as if denim fibers are somehow uniquely identifying one, you know, one victim out of the millions of people who own denim products you know again absolutely absurd and yet this was evidence that was introduced to uh painted on bundy and even the uh some of the witnesses who placed this man at the scene of the crime in the first place were questionable you know two there were two witnesses who told stories that were patently false and actually were not even allowed to testify there was only one out of like three witnesses who were able to testify at all which of course raised the question of if it was so easy to, you know, if there was so com such compelling evidence of this van being connected to the to Kimberly Leach's abduction, why was it so hard to find even a one more than one remotely credible witness to it? You'd think that you wouldn't have had to go into the depths of people who were obviously telling false stories, you know, about, you know, I think uh, Dave McGowan's book even talked about how, you know, there was one witness who pretty much said, you know, it was a uh, said something like, you know, it was a warm, summery day, it was actually raining that day, and so their testimony was stricken from the records, you know, but it was, it was just absurd, you know, the level of evidence that was against Bundy, it's the sort of thing that is outwardly compelling on the surface, and yet there's actually not a whole lot of real, you know, not a whole lot of, you know, real powerful evidence. Every part of it can be reasonably disputed, and it's all just this whole circumstantial chain in the first place, so once again, you know, whether Ted Bundy was involved or not, it's a question that's uh, probably hard to answer at this point, but there's certainly a lot about his uh, alleged involvement in this that does not seem to stand up to scrutiny, at least not legal scrutiny. There should have at least been a, a decent amount of reasonable doubt based on the case that was presented. Now, it is nevertheless interesting that James Parmenter was apparently being targeted by whoever was in this van, be it Ted Bundy or someone else. Because of course, uh, remember that that you know the one of Bundy one of Bundy's first victims in Utah was uh, was Melissa Smith, the daughter of a police chief there. Several of Bundy's murders in uh, in Colorado had. I mean, Bundy's murder of Karen Campbell may have been you know uh, she was the sister of a uh, Fort Lauderdale cop, and then of course he committed a his other murders intersected with the unsavory activities that corrupt cops in Grand Junction were up to. And then here you have James Parmenter, his daughter seemingly being targeted. And James Parmenter is just a couple years fresh off of investigating a number of missing children's cases in the Jacksonville area, which is interesting for a couple of reasons, including the Jacksonville is the, Jacksonville is basically the stomping grounds of Otis Toole, uh, Henry Lee Lucas's partner. And Otis Toole is a, a longtime member of the Hand of Death cult from the early childhood days in Jacksonville. So with missing children being investigated in Jacksonville or the distinct possibility that there were some tie-ins to these uh, to these cults, uh, to these local cults that were operating right there at the time. So it's rather curious. It was, 
There was also what Arlene Warhos. Oh god, Arlene, she was Arlene Warnos. Warnos, yeah, she was active in Daytona Beach, I think, around this time. Daytona's, you know, only about uh, an hour and maybe 10, 20 minutes south of Jacksonville as well. Right. And, uh, you know, it was also sort of that whole area. I mean, it's really been big for a lot of years with um, a lot of biker gangs, especially the outlaws and that type of thing. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I mean, Volusia County is an interesting place in general. You know, they have a uh, they were the site of a rather infamous uh, electronic voting machine error, so-called error in the 2000 election where Al Gore received negative 16,022 votes, funnily enough. Uh, but yeah, you know, there's a lot of weirdness that happened in the whole area of Northern Florida that uh, a lot of people don't really talk about all that, uh, all that much. But yeah, you know, the, the, the stuff that goes on and stuff that was going on there may well have been tied in some of the, uh, you know, that may well have been why, you know, if James Parmenter was onto some of these things as part of his police work, he may well become a target. And so in that regard, it is potentially significant that he was, that he was apparently, you know, sought out by this, uh, whoever this person was, Ted Bundy or whoever was in the van a day before Kimberly Leach's own disappearance and murder. It is a uh, strange, no doubt. And then the final sort of weirdness about the whole thing is that one of Monday's defense witnesses was uh, a man named uh, Milton Klein. And uh, Milton Klein, the name may be recognizable to some people because he appeared in uh, certain uh, works on MKUltra back in the late 70s. I'd like to, I believe John Marx's book, Search for the Manchurian Candidate, he was talking about, he was interviewed and he basically said, yeah, I've been part of these MKUltra programs. You know, I worked on creating Manchurian candidates. And I believe he even said some quote to the effect like, yeah, it would take me uh, you know, five months to create a Manchurian candidate, but only one month to create a Manchurian patsy. And uh, so, yeah, he was giving these statements about MKUltra and claiming to have been involved in MKUltra. And so it is rather weird for him to turn up on Bunny's defense team, uh, incidentally disputing the testimony under hypnosis, which not wrong to do so, but, but it's still odd to see a character like that show up here. But then later, and later Milton Klein, you know, would soon be charged with uh, lying about his credentials, basically lying about having degrees from uh, Columbia University and Penn State University that he didn't actually have. And so he was, you know, charged and uh, almost, he was charged, I believe he was convicted of this, uh, per this perjury that he, you know, testified to having these degrees that he didn't. And uh, for whatever reason, Bundy, Ted Bundy's lawyer in the Kimberly Leach case was also representing uh, Milton Klein as well, a guy by the name of Vic Africano. So, you know, and that one last uh, weird correspondence with MKUltra yet again seems that you couldn't get through Bundy's uh, murders without it making one final appearance. But ultimately, you know, Bundy, so after this happened, not too long after that, Bundy was caught finally. He was caught having impersonated a man by the name of Kenneth Meisner. And uh, what's weird about that is that Ken Meisner was a real person, a former Florida State University student and somehow Bundy knew a lot of information about Ken Meisner's life that he had no reasonable way of knowing. He even knew about a California trip that Ken Meisner had taken uh, a number of years ago and there was no one who knew about that except for you know people except for the military you know personnel records division so somehow Bundy was able to get access to this uh, information about Ken Meisner that was only held in military records. 
So, you know, again, the, it appears that, and this, this was talked about directly by Ken, the real Ken Meisner himself, giving an interview to a news article. He literally said in print, you know, no, no one knows about this except for the, uh, the, you know, the military personnel archives. So how the hell did this guy know this? You know, it really spooked him quite a bit. So once again, you know, as with the whole escape from Colorado in the first place, it's highly unlikely that Bunny would have been able to pull this off without having some kind of outside help. In this case, outside help, a handler or something to obtain information that a normal person would not have been able to obtain and then give that to Bundy as his new fake identity. But ultimately Bunny was caught, found out, and then he was you know, charged with these two murders. And by the end of it all, he was finally put on death row in Florida, sentenced to uh, be executed and, uh, that, that's pretty much the, uh, that was the end of the story. You know, he was on death row for a while. He, you know, made these confessions near the end of his life, but ultimately he was executed in 1989. And uh, there, from that point on, the cases were pretty much all closed. You know, no one saw fit to challenge them anymore. And even, even still today, DNA evidence was taken from Bundy to be compared to future crimes. I don't think it's ever hit on any I don't think it's ever hit on any unsolved crimes thus far, but what has never been done to my knowledge is to test Bunny's DNA against any surviving forensic evidence from crime that he was already assumed to have been, that he was already assumed to be guilty of or already convicted of to verify that these convictions were actually real. No one seems to have any interest in doing that, in uh, validating and potentially disproving certain cases that are already considered by everyone to be the work of Ted Bundy. All right, to wrap up, uh, let's pull back and look at the bigger picture here. <clears throat> what Bub Bundy is implicated in seems to echo the long-time allegations against the Son of Sam cult, as well as Henry Lee Lucas's hand of death outfit. And I would, of course, be uh, remiss, uh, and I would never hear the end of it from John if I didn't mention that uh, the Finders uh, cult uh, was also busted in Tallahassee in 1987, I believe, a couple of years after uh, Bundy had set up uh, his base of operations there. So uh, is this, uh, is in your estimation, this uh, indications of a bigger uh, picture, a bigger organization of work here, as you seem to have been saying throughout? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, the, the evidence of cult involvement really just threads its way through this entire story from the the statements being given to uh, you know, Seattle police about this larger cult being behind the murders there, the signs of uh, the signs of you know, that a lot of these murders in Utah and in Colorado were murder for hire, revolving around drug networks and other things, signs that Linda Benson's murder, which again Bundy was seen at the crime of, and Grand Junction officers like Ben Myers and his underlings were themselves connected to the signs that Linda Benson's murder was a cult killing, maybe even a cult killing. With the same as that calling card used by the hand of death. All these things on their own give pretty strong indications that there were tie-ins with these uh, same cult networks that you we've talked about on this uh, show for quite for quite some time. Now, and there are a couple uh, things that offer even more support of this uh, belief. You know, with uh, with Thomas Thomas Creech, I mentioned before, with the serial killer in Idaho. Well, he was arrested in Idaho and then confessed to a barrage of crimes all around the country. And uh, although some of these crimes were, you know, never confirmed or were you know, disbelieved by police, at least like not, at least nine of these other crimes he confessed to were, did actually lead to the discovery of bodies, uh, you know, 
bodies exactly where he said they would be. And he, of course, talked about being drawn into this, uh, being drawn into the satanic cult, which did murder for hire and which committed and, uh, you know, which did these ritualistic killings, which, uh, you know, killed both for, you know, these, these pleasure, you know, satanic pleasure, but also for specific organized crime reasons under contract. It's the exact same story that Henry Lucas told about the hand of death just a decade earlier. And then the same sort of thing about confessing all these interstate killings and some of them being confirmed, some of them being disbelieved is also very much like Henry Lucas. Even the exact method by which Thomas Creech claimed to have been recruited into this cult is precisely the same way that Henry Lucas claimed recruitment. As I also mentioned briefly before, Thomas Creech said that his connection, his initial induction into this cult began with this, uh, this, this auto transport business that was driving cars around the country and packing heroin into them uh, while doing so. And uh, of course, Henry Lucas claimed that he, uh, that his occult recruiter, Don Metric, uh, Don Metric is a name given in, the, in Max Call's book. It's probably not the real name, but it's the only name we have to go off so far. Claims that, uh, that Don Metric initially offered him a job transporting. Uh, Don Metric basically ran an auto transport business in Shreveport, Louisiana, and that he was offering basically offering Lucas a job to transport these stolen cars with contraband around the country. And that when Lucas uh, turned it down, Metric then offered him a contract killing job. Whereas with uh, Creech, he started with the the car auto transport business and ultimately graduated into contract murder. It is regardless a very uh, uncanny parallel that they both described being recruited by influential businessmen in the auto transport industry. Uh, that's how their initial entry into the cult. So Thomas Creech's account of things is very uh, similar to the, you know, uncannily similar really to the hand of death stuff. And then of course Creech's accounts overlap with everything that we're told in the Seattle police files about this cult that was responsible for the murder of these young women who were ultimately attributed to Bundy. And one of these women even disappeared from Burien, Washington, where this, uh, where, where Creech claimed that this cult was committing their, uh, their ritualistic murders. So you have, you have that connection right off the bat with the Creech to the hand of death and Creech to Bundy. Then you also have uh, another sort of odd hand of death connection comes with this uh, with this uh, Adam Walsh case that I brought up previously. And you know, I, I brought up how uh, there was a drug trafficking connection between uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida and Vail, Colorado involving a man named Alan Rivenbark and also involving this, uh, the fiance of uh, John Walsh's boss. Now John Walsh's boss by the name of, John Walsh's boss by the name of John Monahan uh, was a sort of hotel industry executive. He, his, uh, and he, act, he actually was involved in overseeing the entire investigation, the identification of all these bodies and that plane crash of Alan Rivenbark and these other people. Uh, and he also was the one who identified Adam Walsh's uh, head at the head of Adam Walsh that was discovered after Adam Walsh's uh, disappearance as being Adam Walsh's head. And uh, why I bring that up specifically is that there's actually in recent years some doubt that Adam Walsh was really murdered at all. And it's a very uh, strange and seemingly controversial thing to say, but this, uh, this journalist by the name of Arthur J. Harris, who has been looking into the Adam Walsh uh, case for some time, initially, you know, turned up evidence in uh, police files that although people, the case was pinned on Otis Toole and uh, was closed by a confession from Otis Toole that didn't really seem to have a whole lot of backing to it, 
there's actually a lot of buried witness accounts in the police investigation pointing to Jeffrey Dahmer, another serial killer who shows up in program to kill as being the perpetrator of uh, Adam Walsh's abduction. And that was the focus of uh, Arthur J. Harris's initial investigation. But then to a surprise, he was contacted by someone who said, I am Adam Walsh. I was abducted by Jeffrey Dahmer, but I didn't, but I wasn't murdered. I'm still alive. And uh, he was very skeptical to say the least, but he heard this person out and ultimately was able to confirm, he was able to confirm through a, uh, through one of uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's army buddies in bomb holder Germany uh, named Billy Capshaw that this person, that this person claimed to be Adam Walsh I'll just give them the, the initialism AW because that's the initialism that Arthur J. Harris gave this person. Found that AW knew a lot of information about Jeffrey Dahmer's personal tics and everything that no one would know unless they really did meet Dahmer. So he was confirmed as knowing Jeffrey Dahmer in some capacity. And a childhood friend of Adam Walsh just talked to this person too and seemed to confirm that this person had some memories that uh, strongly pointed to uh, them actually being animals and remembering this, uh, and remembering this stuff from their childhood. So this person, A.W., does very much appear to have been, uh, you know, it appears very uh, strong, you know, and compelling that this person may actually be Adam Walsh, and that a lot, and that in that case, the identification of Adam Walsh, uh, the identification of Adam, this head as being Adam Walsh, is in very serious doubt, as Arthur J. Harris proves pretty compellingly throughout his book. And incidentally, one of the people who was part of this identification was the Florida medical examiner, Dr. Richard Suveron, who was also the expert presenting the bite mark testimony at Bundy's trial, for whatever it's worth. But uh, in any case, this uh, person, A.W., gave this witness, gave this uh, witness account saying that, yeah, he was abducted at the mall, the, or the, uh, the Sears in Hollywood, Florida, by Jeffrey Dahmer, taken to an apartment uh, down and taken to an apartment in the Miami area where a number of children re were being held captive for presumably sex trafficking purposes. And he says that at this hotel, he actually saw Otis, uh, or this apartment, he saw Otis Tool there as well. And uh, so that would actually, that actually seemed to indicate that uh, Otis Tool's claims of having something to do with it were not totally false, that he was somehow involved but was not acting alone, as he said, but rather as a sort of accomplice to Dahmer in that sense. And there were, and as uh, R.G. Harris looked into it more, he actually developed some, uh, developed another witness who placed, uh, who said, who actually said that he saw both Dahmer and Tool together at the Hollywood Mall uh, while, you know, while all this stuff was going down on the very same day of Adam Walsh's abduction. And he was able to, uh, he was able to, uh, definitely confirmed that Otis Tool and Jeffrey Dahmer were both in the Miami area at the time and also was able to validate and also found a curious quote in Max Cole's book where they described Otis Tool having a effeminate uh, friend with pale blue eyes that were as cold as ice who was part of the hand of death cold as well and of course Jeffrey Dahmer himself was a practitioner of Satanism that's well established and uh, so Arthur J. Harris ultimately comes to uh, realize that A.W.'s account of seeing both Tool and Dahmer together was, was reasonably, you know, plausible in a lot of ways, that they were both part of the same cult as each other, you know, the hand of death or whatever. And uh, to finally, to top, to top it all off and to tie back to Bundy, A.W. claimed that 
in addition to seeing Dahmer and Tool, he also saw Ted Bundy at this apartment, this human trafficking apartment where kids were being held captive. Now, this is a bit strange because Ted Bundy would have been on death row at this point. Uh, Adam Walsh was abducted in July of 1981. So it would have been impossible for Bundy to be out there unless, of course, he was uh, getting some kind of thoroughly lenient treatment behind the scenes, you know, for example, being able to pretend to be in prison, but actually not be, you know, not be, and, you know, if his, if his political connections were, you know, as real as they were, that maybe he was given some form of, you know, reward or something for his silence, and, you know, being willing to confess to all the crimes that he ultimately did confess to, even though there's not a whole lot of real evidence linking him to them. So, you know, this account by A.W. of seeing Ted Bundy out of prison, despite being incarcerated on death row, being connected with these other cultists like Jeffrey Dahmer and Otis Toole, could be a delusion, could be wishful thinking, but it could also be a, you know, glimpse into a, a world that's uh, a lot of us would rather think does not, you know, does not true, you know, does not truly exist. There's a criminal underground of uh, such depravity and such reach and power that we could barely even imagine its existence, and yet it it is there. Absolutely. <clears throat> also have the, uh, was it the Green River uh, murderer too, I believe, Gary Ridgway, uh, who Bundy had assisted in the investigation, uh, why he was on death row. Uh, yeah. It, yes, it had, uh, it had occurred to me, he was also interesting, uh, the Green River murder was also uh, obviously convicted in Washington State, but uh, he had originated from Salt Lake City, so that's kind of another uh, interesting connection to that particular region. Um, yeah, no doubt. It had occurred to me too that um, Bundy, it seems like, um, uh, what's his name? Thomas Harris had used uh, certain elements of Bundy's story for the uh, Hannibal Lecter character and some of the other serial killers. Uh, there is that kind of air of him consulting with the FBI agents while incarcerated. And um, also his modus operandi early on of using the cast on his arm. I think that's what Buffalo Bill used in um, yeah. Silence of the Lambs. So yeah. Uh, very interesting because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in Thomas Harris's uh, books, certainly. Uh, I would say that he was probably aware of some of the stuff that we've been uh, talking about as well. I mean, he was, uh, I think, the uh, main character, uh, Clarice, or who was inspired in part by uh, the, the profiler John Douglas. I, I believe he was a major inspiration for the book. And of course, John Douglas is a uh, of the FBI behavioral science unit is a pretty reliable purveyor of official narratives in all these cases. And, you know, for example, believing that Wayne Williams was the sole perpetrator, you know, the, you know, the perpetrator in the Atlanta child murders and that there was tr no larger pedophile group or anything like that. So, yeah, you know, the, I mean, the interplay between our popular culture and these uh, law enforcement beliefs is a very interesting one. You know, they, the, the official narratives we get shape our pop culture and then that affects how we view these cases and how people have over time been conditioned to believe that these uh, lone nuts are the way the world works. You know, that whether we're talking about a political assassination, whether we're talking about what is obviously a mob hit or sort of thing that gets passed off to us as just a random killing, we're ultimately being conditioned to believe that a murder is always random, senseless, largely motiveless. And uh, I think that's a rather... Uh, unfortunate inversion of reality. There are too many cases out there where it's exactly the opposite, but presented as being something different from the truth. Now, uh, to uh, also wanted to interject just a bit about the Green River Killer since you brought that up. There are a couple of curious things about it too. One of them being uh, you know, that 
there are again signs that the Green River, the convicted Green River killer Gary Ridgway did not act alone. That uh, for that in particular, the uh, Picton pig farm uh, out in Vancouver, so you know, just north of the U.S.-Canada border, had some connection to what Gary Ridgway was up to. There was this one uh, woman who was a victim of the of the Pictons, but uh, of the Pictons, but also talk about knowing this man named Gary Leon, who was almost certainly Gary Leon Ridgway. So, you know, you have certain women who were involved in this sort of a, you know, prostitution scene uh, who ended up turning up murdered either by the Green River Killer or by the, uh, by the Picton brothers. And of course the Picton brothers were throwing parties at their pig farm uh, that were att well attended by a lot of locally prominent individuals, including once again, biker gangs. Hells Angels and similar groups. And of course, that is yet another striking parallel to all these allegations you have about the Bundy case itself, with biker gangs being involved potentially in the abduction of Denise Noslin, biker gangs potentially being involved with the Donegal Manson, and uh, Thomas Creech claiming to be associated with these biker gangs doing organized crime activities. So you have these uh, parallels there with the Green River Killer and the uh, Pick and Pick Farm, which appear to have been happening at the same time and very likely related to each other in that sense. And one, I guess, final note about the Green River Killer, is, you know, Anne Rule did, after writing on Ted Bundy, also write about the Green River Killer. And uh, she actually talked about how, at one point, she received a letter from, uh, uh, basically a letter from this apparent informant about the Green River Killer case from a man in Washington, D.C., who was you know, an attorney in Washington, D.C. and. Uh, Basically, he said that, you know, he pretty much said, you know, I know what happened to all these murdered women, and he has tapes that could prove what happened to them. Now, at the same time, he also told Ann Rule that he was a major figure in the Watergate scandal. Pretty much said that uh, Bernstein and Woodward relied on his information for, you know, relied on the information for part of the reporting. And this made Ann Rule even more skeptical. You know, first person said they know what the about the Green River Killer murders. Now they're telling me they were in Watergate too. And uh, basically, you know, he sent these tapes, he sent these tapes to the, to Ann Rule. And uh, he basically, and he basically, you know, talked about, uh, talked about how he witnessed this cult in this cult in the Seattle area. He was abducting these women and then, and then perpetrating sacrifices over them. He talked about how he would hide in the, he hid in the, woods hid hid while well, these cult operations were going on and he talked about how he basically saw the entire thing it was uh saw saw all these murders being these green river killer murders being committed as cult killings and uh to Anne real surprise she ultimately she later came got a copy of uh, the book all the president's men you know the sort of official narrative book on watergate and then ended up finding that her uh, her informant had actually been mentioned in the book as a you know, as a key figure in the case, exactly as he said. So, when we talked about Watergate and the connections there before, how people like Eagle Krogh had an association with the University of Washington and how there are intelligence links there. But I thought this was one more fascinating thing, in that uh, the Green River Killer, you know, a person who was part of the Watergate scandal, claimed to have witnessed the Green River Killer, uh, the Green River killings being committed as cult murders. And that Anne Rule, predictably if ever, never took this information seriously or followed up on it at all. Just uh, wanted to bring that up as a sort of final uh, tie back to what we 
talked about way in the beginning. Yeah, no, it is uh, certainly fascinating uh, because, I mean, obviously, I think what Bundy's killings in Washington State uh, stopped around, what, 75, and then about, what, five or six years later, like 81 or something, the Green River killer uh, killings start. Uh, and then, of course, uh, despite uh, Ted Bundy's uh, intervention and assistance to uh, law enforcement, the uh, killings in, in 1984, the killings continued, I think, for like another 17 years or something like that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> it was not until the early knots that they were uh, wrapped up. And then, of course, as you had uh, talked about at the beginning, uh, a few years later, Israel Keys uh, shows up in the whole area. So, um, yeah, it's uh, interesting. You know, and you kind of have that strange uh, pipeline, too, with the, uh, you know, kind of Mormon connection. So I don't know if uh, Green River Killer was a Mormon, but uh, with family from Salt Lake City, it's pretty good bet that he at least had some Mormon family members. Um, so, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, George, this has been uh, fascinating. We've almost got to the four hour mark. Uh, you didn't quite beat Doc Future, but you've done damn, uh, damn good at it, son. And not a lot of people can beat Doc Future. <laughs> yeah, I'm honestly surprised. You know, I looked at the clock and how many it's actually been that long. But yeah, I mean, we, there's a lot of ground to cover. I guess I even going into it underestimated how much it would really be in total. It's a very dense case when all things are laid out on the table. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you guys have enjoyed enjoyed this uh, deep dive as much as we have um, barking upon it. On that note, we'll sign off for now. As always, good night and good luck to you.